find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting the days go by, water flowing underground, into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground, and you may ask yourself, Mary X lapsed, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, welcome to uh, something different for this week. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at some seminal and, uh, well, I guess not so seminal, uh, X-Men Christmas stories. Um, it's a weird week. Uh, it's going to be a busy week for a lot of us, and I figured I'd shake things up just a little bit. Um, I had initially considered doing like a 12 days thing. That's usually what I do when I discuss Christmas stuff over at the blog. been doing that for... About, you know, five years now, every Christmas and actually every July as well, I would do as much Christmas as I could, uh, as I could uh, assume people could stomach <laughs> because, uh, Christmas is uh, kind of dicey when it comes to creating content. Some people really love it. Some people are just done with it. So it's, uh, it's always a bit of a, uh, a gamble when you do this. Now, like I said, I wanted to do 12 days, but I didn't want us to fall too far behind on our original X-Lapse mission statement, right? Wanted to keep as close to being on target as possible. I figured here we could probably take five days and uh, just devote it to uh, some, you know, stories from the past. And the X-Lapse name is, is kind of a misnomer here, since these are all stories that I've read um, many times for some of them, fewer times for others. But uh, I'm not necessarily lapsed from them, but that's Kind of the brand right now So we're going to keep going with that uh, Now today, we're going to start this off with uh, Well, with Chris Claremont's very first X-Men Christmas story We're going way back to late 1975, early 1976 This is before I was even on this planet So uh, this is going to be a fun one It's going to be a really fun one because it's been ages since I read it And I think this is going to be a really fun time So let's get right in This is X-Men number 98 at an April 1976 cover date, the story's called Merry Christmas, X-Men. Uh, some places call it Merry Christmas, X-Men, hyphen, hyphen, the Sentinels are back. I guess whichever way you want to say it is fine by me. Written by Chris Claremont with pencils by Dave Cockrum. Inks by Sam Granger. Lead is Joe Rosen. Colors Janice Cohen. Edits Marv Wolfman. Cover price? <sighs> 25 cents. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? Now, we don't usually dwell on the covers in our little X-lapsed corner of the world here, mostly because nowadays covers are mostly meaningless and interchangeable. Here, though, let's talk just a little bit about our cover. Um, I mean, first of all, it's really good. What we got here is a pair of sentinels atop a building being fought off by Cyclops, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Storm, while Colossus is swatted away and seemingly falling to his death. Now, the trade dress still reads all new, all different. I mean, these are very, very new characters. And six of our featured characters' heads are shown in a little bubble toward the top left of this image here, the top left of the cover. And it's like a mini roll call. And it's also everyone I've already named, plus Banshee. It's a good cover. I like it. Um, this is an issue that I actually don't own. 
Uh, and so I'm using the Black and White Essential X-Men Volume 1 from 1996 to uh, to read this. I'm sure one of these days I'll own it, though. Just uh, not today. <laughs> now, uh, one more thing about the cover. Um, I mean, this is a christmas theme week here. It's not really a Christmas-themed cover, is it? I mean, it doesn't have to be. But for the purpose of this episode in particular, I kind of wish it was. Don't worry, though. We'll hopefully get a Christmas cover or two in during the week. All right, now with that said, let's head inside. Now, the X-Men, they're in their civvies, and they're visiting Rockefeller Center. Folks are ice skating. The tree is up. It's a really, really nice scene. I'd only ever gone into the city a handful of times during the Christmas season, and probably only once or twice after dark during the holidays. Um, And it's probably been... Oh, boy, it's probably been 30 years since, but... uh, I remember it always being a very special place to be. Uh, I was in, uh, I was actually right at Rockefeller Center last October. I hung out there for a few days, but it's really not the same place when the tree isn't up. It's just, it's just a place. But when the tree is up and folks are out and lights are up, it's, it's a magical place. Now, into the story, it's Christmas Eve, which, if you're familiar with my Christmas posts over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, You may recall that about 95% of our Christmas issue synopsis start with, It's Christmas Eve. (laughs) Now, Jean is overjoyed that it looks like it's going to be a white Christmas. Storm comments about how uh, New York snow isn't really all that white, especially when compared to the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, which, while probably accurate, isn't really all that fair, is it? Uh, oh, Oh, we got cameos here. Before we go on, let's check out the uh, star-studded streets of Manhattan here. Uh, Here we see Matt Murdock. At least I'm assuming it's Matt Murdock, as I don't know who else would be wearing sunglasses at night. Uh, This is pre-Corey Hart, so it really wasn't cool to do so. Not that it really was all that cool post-Corey Hart, but at least there would be some precedent. Uh, Nick Fury is here. And oddly enough, if you look closely, Doctor Doom is ice skating. (laughs) In front of the tree at Rockefeller Center You you really can't make this stuff up Plus, uh, from across the street We do see a pair of reporters from the Daily Planet As well as a certain comics bigwig named Schwartz So how about that? Now off to the side of the group Nightcrawler with an image inducer That makes him look like a a stereotypical 70s pervert And Colossus, they're trying to chat up a pair of young ladies One of whom is named Amanda Though I can't recall off the top of my head if this is THE Amanda in Nightcrawler's life, Amanda Sefton. If it does turn out to be her, I'm guessing that this is probably her first appearance. Sean and Mora break away to take in some sights. And probably so Mora can see and compare and contrast how different New York City is during her tenth and final life. Wolverine is invited to hang out with Scott and Jean, but passes. He ain't got no use for Christmas cheer. Which kind of begs the question, why didn't he just stay home? Right. It is worth noting here that Logan is sporting one of my least favorite cockroom looks here. Okay, he's got severe Eddie Munster painted on Widow's Peak, and oh, it is unpleasant to look at. It's it's like jarringly unpleasant to look at. Really, really ugly. Um, now Scott and Gene they head into Rockefeller Plaza, with the former suggesting that you know maybe this Wolverine ain't the best fit for the team. Uh, We do get clarification here that the new X-Men have been together for almost a year at this point. Uh, Scott second-guesses his own judgment by copping to the fact that he thought Havoc and Polaris would be a great fit for the team. 
and those two tried killing the X-Men just last issue. Whoops. Inside the plaza, Jean demands that Scott just, you know, stop flapping his gums, just shut up, and kiss her. And this might be the first time we're seeing these two, like, as adults in this sort of romantic situation. And that idea is further compounded by our next pair of cameos. It's Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who take a look at the kissing couple and proclaim that, quote, they never, they never used to do that when they had the book. Which is pretty cute. Uh, Scott and Jean head toward, I don't know, they head deeper into the place. Maybe to a dance floor, maybe to the dinner table, somewhere deeper inside the plaza. When all of a sudden, the Sentinels burst through the roof of the place. Cyclops lets loose with an optic blast, which appears to have no effect. Now, these Mark III Sentinels then helpfully inform us, and them, that they've been equipped to negate the powers of the X-Men. So Cyclops is kind of out of luck. Now, Gene suggests that the Sentinels have probably been primed with data from, quote, the old X-Men, the ones they fought back in 1969. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think we'd be getting hard hard dates like this anymore. Um, It kind of makes these characters seem ancient, except when you realize that this issue only came out like five or six years after 1969. It makes you realize that time was a lot different back then when it came to comics. I'm thinking about, like, nowadays. We've got ex-characters who've been around for, like, the better part of 20 years who still feel kind of like newbies at this point. You know, I'm thinking, like, you know, Quentin Quire, right? He's been around for almost two decades, and he still feels new. It's it's kind of weird how different times are uh, as it goes with how tenured characters might feel. Anyway, Jean slams the Sentinel with her stronger TK power, which thankfully the machine isn't, you know, up to date on. This knocks the bot off kilter, so Cyclops is finally able to land an optic blast, which sends the Sentinel's stomach parts through its back. But there are more Mark III's waiting right off panel. One KOs Scott with a karate chop and then sprays Jean in the face with some sleep agent. The Sentinel grabs Jean and flies off to somewhere while reporting into, somewhere, that the mutant designated as Cyclops is dead. Only he's not. Uh, The bot miscalculated the power of its chop. Uh, Clearly, it wasn't a a student of Count Dante, otherwise Scott's fate would never have been in question. Now we rejoin the not-dead Scott as he's dangling from a radio mast, some 60 stories above the streets of New York. And these are streets that are kind of engulfed in flames and near riots at this point. Nearby, Sean sees what's going down, and he leaps into action. Wolverine is nearby, too, and so he latches onto Banshee's feet as he flies overhead to get a bit closer into the fracas. Storm also sees what's going on, and she, too, enters the fray, managing to rescue Cyclops just before he loses his grip. And once she's up there, she informs him that, you know, hey, while I was flying over, I saw Banshee and Wolverine get snagged by a great big robot. So, uh, I guess they were taken out pretty easily. Uh, Then, speaking of great big robots, a sentinel appears. Only, as Gene suggested earlier, these sentinels have been primed to fight the original five, so when it comes to a character like Storm, it's woefully unprepared. Unfortunately, these robots seemed fully prepared to defeat Banshee and Wolverine off-panel, though. Storm then concocts a hurricane high above the New York skyline, which handily wrecks the sentinel, uh, while Chris Claremont himself looks on from the street below, which is pretty neat. Cyclops kind of freaks out, suggesting that she could have done some serious damage to the city, which she brushes off, because she knew exactly what she was doing. Cyclops is all, okay, okay, but if the professor was here... Which kind of reminds him that, oh wait a minute, the professor isn't here. 
and so Charles doesn't know that their old robotic foes are back in production. And so, this facilitates a scene shift 1,000 miles southward to a yacht in the Bahamas. Professor X is hanging out with his old friend, Dr. Peter Corbeau, uh, whose yacht is called the Dejathoris? Dejathoris? Which uh, some deep dive research via about eight seconds of Googling reveals that this is the name of a Martian princess or something from Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter novels? Maybe? I don't know. Never been into that. I, I couldn't tell you. Anywho, Xavier's here to kind of blow off some steam and to fish while pressing Corbeau for some answers regarding the binary that he pictured in his dream a couple issues back. And this is the thing that will ultimately introduce us to the wonderfully dull Shi'ar Empire. Now, Corbeau don't know. He's done a ton of research trying to nail down exactly what Xavier's talking about. He even went as far as to cross-reference the files of the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, but still, bupkis. Corbeau then suggests that, uh, hey, maybe this is, uh, you know, all in your mind, bro. To which Xavier takes great offense and accuses his pal of thinking him insane. Charles doesn't get to throw his tantrum for all that long, however, as suddenly there's a little bit of a pull on his fishing line. He's got a bite. Only, it's no fish, it's a sentinel. Xavier zaps it with a mind blast, but unfortunately he's a little bit weaker than usual due to all the wonkiness in his head. It's enough to drop the sentinel back in the drink, for now anyway. Xavier then tells Corbeau to put the pedal to the metal, or however one would go about making a yacht go fast, but then he's once again struck by the boring binary. The sentinel then bursts through the bottom of Dehathoris, rendering it into scrap, making it look like a Dexter Morgan slice of life during the finale. The bot then yoinks Xavier and takes off for... somewhere, leaving Corbeau bobbing in the surf boatless. Thankfully, though, it would appear that uh, old Corbeau still has his sense of humor about things. Now, we jump ahead four days later. It's December 28th, 1976, another hard and firm date that I don't think we'd be getting anymore. And uh, December 28th, 1976 is just one day shy of three years until the day I uh, made my first appearance. Now, the captured X-Men, which is to say Banshee, Wolverine, and Jean Grey, they're all strapped to boards while being prodded and scanned and examined by a bunch of lab rats. We then meet our big bed, Dr. Stephen Lang. One of the technicians, who Lang refers to as a technician, informs the big boss that uh, he's getting some weird readings from Wolverine. He knows he's definitely not human, but he's not so sure that he's a mutant. Though he does concede that the, the Sentinels did say he was a mutant, however. And I'm not sure if this is one of the early hints that Claremont and Cockrum had some ugh, high evolutionary style plans for Wolverine. Eh. Now, our man doesn't cotton to being shackled, and he starts giving Lang some lip. To which the doc tells him that he can struggle all he likes, but he'll never be able to break free of the unbreakable chrome alloy bonds that hold him against that board. Gene then calls Lang a Nazi, which he denies by saying he's uh, just following orders, which probably isn't the denial you think it is, pal. Uh, Gene then asks why the Sentinels attacked the X-Men. Lang says that the X-Men are the most formidable mutants around, and so, if he gets them out of the way, it'll be far easier to rid the world of the menace. He then backhands Jean in the face, just slaps her right in the face. Now, this causes Wolverine to stop screwing around. He busts right on out of those unbreakable chrome alloy shackles, and, for the first time ever, 
snicks his claws out of uniform, which, you know, reveals that the claws are actually part of him and not just a gimmick for his gloves. It's pretty subtle. And to be honest, I totally missed the significance of this during this read-through. At first, anyway. Now, Wolverine just wrecks havoc on the lab. Rats and machines are tossed all over the place until they just bug on out and escape. Wolverine then puts on his costume, which... I guess it's handy it was there. I didn't realize he packed it. Uh, Then he frees his teammates. Now, here's where Banshee is depicted as being pretty gobsmacked to the fact that Wolverine's claws are actually a part of his body. And he wonders why the other X-Men didn't know this, to which Wolverine tells him it wasn't any of their business. Wolverine then makes an alteration to Jean's dress, turning it into a rather short thing, so they can all vamoose with the quickness. Then, another Sentinel shows up. Then, like, two or three more show up. Now, the combined efforts of these X-Men make short work of the bots. Banshee has Wolverine and Jean each grab an arm, and then he Sonic screams their way out. They burst through wall after wall until they get to the final wall of this facility, and... uh Uh-oh, something's definitely wrong. We just can't see what that is quite yet. We shift scenes back to Xavier's, where Cyclops is trying to track down the missing mutants. He's joined up by Nightcrawler, who checks in on his progress, to which there sadly isn't any. Their conversation is cut short by an intruder alert popping up on the monitors, and it turns out it's Dr. Peter Corbeau. Cyclops reveals that his Cerebro scan has not picked up any readings for the Professor, Gene, Wolverine, or Banshee, so he can only assume that they're dead. But Scott won't accept that, and he vows to continue the search. He needs to know why it would seem as though the X-Men have vanished off the face of the Earth. Well, Corbeau suggests that maybe they have been taken off-planet. You ever consider that, Scott? Hmm. And indeed, we wrap up with a shot of Banshee, Wolverine, and Jean floating in the vacuum of space. That'll do it for X-Men number 98, and uh, let's start by saying, uh, can you believe this was just one issue? (laughs) I mean, uh, we know that Claremont is a dense writer here, but you really got your money's worth back in the long ago. Could you imagine getting all this story for one thin American quarter? It's pretty insane, right? Uh, Before we dig into the book, let's get one thing out of the way. Um, Over the past five years, as I mentioned, I've covered a lot of Christmas stories over on the blog. Um, And as mentioned, five years is kind of like ten holiday seasons for the blog, considering that I run specials for Christmas on Infinite Earths as well as Christmas on Infinite Earths in July. So over there, we've probably talked about well over a hundred Christmas issues, right? And they usually fall into one or two columns. A, stories that have to do with Christmas, or B, stories that just happen to take place during Christmas, and sometimes there's overlap. For this issue, I'd suggest it's definitely more B than A, but with enough A to make it feel, you know, pretty festive, festive enough anyway, uh, until the death robots appeared anyway. Um, I haven't put the finishing touches on what the other four Merry X-Lapsed books we're going to be covering are. I, I know what next episode is, I just don't know what the final three are. So I can't say how festive the books that follow will wind up being, but, I mean, you'll know when I do, I guess. Now, as an issue itself, Christmas-themed or otherwise, well, we got ourselves a fair amount of talk about here, don't we? This is an unexpectedly seminal issue for our all-new, all-difference. Though, I mean, in fairness, back in the long ago, I suppose suppose most issues were. 
kind of makes me nostalgic for an era I wasn't even around for. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, I wasn't even on the planet yet. <laughs> so, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I, I suppose maybe we can start with one of the more context-sensitive parts of the issue. And uh, with that, I mean the revelation that Wolverine's claws are not just a glove gimmick, but are actually part of his body. And it's so weird, because, I mean, to consider some half-century or so hence, because this was a long time ago, that this was a point that actually had to be made. It's weird, right? Like I said during the synopsis, my knowing that Wolverine's claws are a part of him made me totally miss what a big reveal that this actually was. Like, I wonder if you put this book in front of a, like a newcomer to the X-Men, if they would just be like, oh, wait a minute, there was a time where we didn't know that? It seems kind of strange, right? Uh, we also have that weird thing where, you know, Wolverine is scanned, and uh, we find out that maybe, just maybe, he's not entirely mutant in makeup. I'd like to thank whoever had the forethought to snuff out the Logan is actually an Evolve Wolverine idea before it came to fruition, because... Woof, that's an awful concept. Uh, we also get to see some uh, of the first one-on-one interactions between he and Jean, which is, you know, in hindsight, pretty interesting. She doesn't seem to have any real affinity toward him, which is kind of how I wish they kept it. Uh, who, who could blame her for being turned off, though, with that horrendous painted-on widow's peak that he was sporting at the time? I mean, I could barely look at an out-of-costume Wolverine panel without... Bursting into an actual laughing fit Like tears and all because <sighs> He ain't got no alibi This is not pleasant to look at uh, The Professor His storyline here is all tied up in Shi'ar hints, right? Which makes me kinda happy that we're Just bebopping around for Christmas stories Instead of plowing straight through Because I mean, if you're following with this channel You know we're getting more than enough space stuff In the current year books I don't really think I have it in me to discuss more of it. That said, I do like the idea of it as a subplot, and getting to see Xavier conferring with a pal in Corbeau to see what he can make of it is pretty neat. If you stop and think about it, I mean, Claremont at this point was almost rewriting the language of comics. You know, subplots and soap opera, all very compelling stuff because everything has meaning and adds to the bigger picture. Everything's going to come back around, everything is going to be meaningful. It's really, really wonderful. Um, that's part of me that wishes I could just continue plowing through these stories. Shi'ar and all. Now, the Sentinels. Uh, they've never been all that interesting to me. Though, I suppose since I'm mostly swimming in Dawn of X-Waters right now, where we don't get a whole lot of X-Men vs. X-Villains, it seems strangely fresh, so I'm okay with it. Uh, the Scott and Jean scene was nice. I'd almost forgotten how much I like seeing them together. I gotta figure it's pr- it was probably kind of a, a trip for readers of the day to see these characters who, I mean, they saw as adolescents not too long ago, now as adults in a fairly mature relationship, for the time, of course. That's another thing that someone like me would take for granted, and did take for granted the first time I read this, because I came into the X fandom during a time where Scott and Jean were pretty much all but married, and they were and they were actually married not too long into it. So a scene like this wouldn't have had the same effect or impact for me. But if you'd grown up with these characters and you've seen them, uh, you know, relatively speaking, mature, I think that'd be kind of a trip to see. 
and uh, definitely something that uh, that I missed out on from coming in from you know backwards. It was interesting to see Storm kind of acting like an outsider here. Uh, <laughs> we right off the bat here, she compares New York snow to Kilimanjaro snow, which is kind of funny, kind of contentious, <laughs> a little silly. Uh, also, her hurricane antics above the city and subsequent clapback at Cyclops when he kind of scolded her for potentially endangering a whole lot of folks. I think uh, today many of us see Storm as someone who would like never, ever be questioned. But here, she's still very new. It's kind of a shock to the system for a fan of a different day and age, right? I mean, I came in, she was leading the gold team. No one was going to question Storm. Here she is, and... Uh, while she had everything under control, uh, it was perfectly reasonable for Cyclops to be like, whoa, you know, maybe reel it in a little bit. Uh, what else? What else? Uh, outside of Logan's Widow Peak, I thought the art here was fantastic. Really, really liked it. Uh, Dave Cockrum has a, a certain magic to him. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, if if we could just scrub that, that inky Widow's Peak off of Wolverine's head, this would be... Rock solid Um, It was cool seeing a bunch of cameos uh, Because they were subtle You know, we didn't plaster a neon sign With an arrow over all their heads So I mean If you notice Doctor Doom ice skating I mean that's good for a laugh, right? But if not, it doesn't really matter It could just be someone else in a cape and metal mask I guess, I don't know Uh, Same for seeing Lois and Clark right? If you notice them, it's a cool little easter egg And if not, you don't lose any enjoyment from the issue itself, which is the way the cameos really ought to be. They shouldn't hinge, a story shouldn't hinge on cameos and uh, what are those member berries that I've been hearing so much about these days. Overall, it was an absolute joy revisiting this issue because it's probably been about 15 or 20 years since I'd last read it. Uh, Pulling out the essential uh, from the shelf here, I still had a bookmark in it. Uh, probably from the third or fourth time I'd read it in, Within the first few years that I owned it And uh, my bookmark was actually right after this issue So I guess that's where my last read-through Probably circa 2002 uh, <laughs> Wrapped up, so pretty, pretty neat Now tomorrow, we're going to be taking a look At a completely different crew of X-Men Taking in Christmas at Rockefeller Center And this is an issue that I probably haven't revisited in at least 20 years, so it's going to be a real treat as well. I hope you all find uh, taking this week to look at some different stories as as fun as I'm thinking it's going to be. I I think I might have needed a little bit of a break from the Dawn of X stuff, and so this is perfect timing. Uh, Everything kind of fell into place for me here. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Also, xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, where I will be putting these episodes as well. Uh, you could talk to us about Christmas, the X-Men, Christmas with the X-Men, Christmas without the X-Men, whatever you want to talk about over on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And you can hear the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives, which we do have several Christmas specials on there over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's all I got to say today. I want to I wanna thank Kermit the Frog for the intro, and I'd like to thank Kids Incorporated for the outro. It's a little weird, <laughs> a little different. I wanted to differentiate these episodes from uh, the regular ones with something silly with the theme musics. Uh, I hope you, you all dig the uh, weirdness of it. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to anyone who uh, decided to share their time with me today. It really, really means a lot. 
So with all that said, uh, next episode we're hopping forward over 20 years, but uh, same Rockefeller Center and, uh, well, all different X-Men. So (laughs) I hope we all are looking forward to that. Uh, So thanks again, and uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it ho 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 and everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to day two of our little break, uh, Merry X Lapsed, where we're, you know, bebopping through X history to eh, spend the holidays with our favorite team here. Today, we're going to be doing sort of a follow up to uh, the first episode where we, you know, hung out in Rockefeller Center with the all new X Men. Now, we're going to go to Rockefeller Center with a whole new bunch of X Men. Well, Not completely new, but different. And it's a story right out of my own personal wheelhouse, so let's get right into it. This is Uncanny X-Men number 341. This had a February 1997 cover date. The story is called When Strikes a Gladiator. Written by Scott Lobdell with pencils by Joe Majuara. Inks, Tim Townsend. Letters, Richard Stockings and Comic Craft. Colors, Steve Bouchelato and Team Bouch. Or Boosie? Boosie? Maybe? I don't know. Edits, Bob Harris. Cover price, $1.95. Now, just like last time, we're going to start with the cover. And just like last time, it's another not-so-Christmassy cover. Uh, it's a pretty good one, though. It's uh, got Cannonball and Gladiator kind of launching toward one another. It kind of reminds me of that issue with a, of a Superman where he fights that... Bronze Age Captain Marvel knockoff, Captain Thunder. Similar poses, you know? It's still Joe Mad, though, which means I am a big fan of it. So I'm always happy to see Joe Mad on the X-Men. Now, this issue came out during my first ever X-Hiatus. Um, I was away from the books at this time after... You know, I've, I've talked about this many times before. I suffered some gimmick cover sticker shock, which... Uh, It was one of those things that reminded me that comics are a business out to make money. I mean, the sheer nerve of it, right? I guess it was just one of the, you know, the first of many times that I felt exploited as a loyal consumer. And I'm sure I will probably never, ever learn. So all that to say, I missed out on, eh, probably over half 
of the Joe Majuara tenure, which kind of sucks, because I, like I said, I really, really do enjoy his work. Okay, with that out of the way, let's hop on inside here, and uh, I think it might be Christmas Eve. <laughs> like I said last episode, um, we do have a pattern of behavior here with uh, Christmas books, and that, like, 90-95% of them do occur on Christmas Eve, so we could probably assume. Let's just say it is. Anyway, what we've got is a group of X-Men taking in the sights at Rockefeller Center. Sadly, there are no Latverian dictators currently cutting it up on the ice this time out, uh, and our cameos are reduced to... a guy who kind of looks like Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots? But, I mean, this was the mid to late 90s, so that could be, like, any dude in his 20s. They all look like Scott Weiland from the Stone Temple Pilots. But, uh, we'll just say it was him. Why not? Now, our team for this holiday outing include Bishop, Gambit, Joseph, remember him? Well, you will. Rogue, Beast, using an image inducer, much like Nightcrawler did last episode, though looking like far less of a creepy pervert than Kurt did. His date is Trish Tilby, who I think I initially mistook as Jubilee in the opening splash page, since she doesn't say anything. Finally, we have our newest X-Man, Cannonball. Now, Beast becomes very, very verbose in order to comment on how it's going to be a white Christmas. Thankfully, Bishop doesn't try to compare the whiteness of New York snow to the nuclear fallout from the future. Eh? I don't know. Hank, who, the more I see him back in the long ago, man, it only compounds how much they've just destroyed his character in recent years. I mean, it's like been a decade at this point that he's been just wrecked. Anyway... Hank plays the Cyclops role from X-Men number 98, and he invites everyone along for a special dinner with he and Ms. Tilby. And, just like in X-Men 98, nobody really seems up for it. Gambit cuts out like Wolverine did, claiming he isn't really feeling the Christmas spirit this time out. Now, Rogue is disappointed as she wanted to spend some time with him. Gambit tells her, hey, you might as well just hang out with Joseph, since, you know, they've been getting so chummy of late. Now, for those of you who might be asking, who in the hell is Joseph? Well, the quick, dirty, and as unspoilery as possible is Joseph appeared to be a younger version of Magneto who was found at a Mexican church or something. He's a good guy, and he's got an eye for Rogue. Now, if you recall, Rogue and Magneto were quite the item during the semi, you know, relatively recently ended Age of Apocalypse epic, which, uh, you know, uh, while I'm here... There's like 10 hours of Age of Apocalypse talk right here on the Chris and Reggie channel, so if anybody wants to hear it, Cosmic Treadmill episodes 100 through 105, all AOA, all the time. Anyway, Joseph is totally cool with having Rogue all to himself, and he invites her to go on a carriage ride. She's kind of tentative, but ultimately agrees to go. Hank then turns to Bishop to see what his excuse for bailing on dinner might be, and uh, Bishop is completely honest with him. Says it's been a rough few months, what with Onslaught and all, and uh, he'd rather, he'd really just rather celebrate alone. Hank is cool with that, he, appreci- he appreciates Bishop's candor. Finally, he turns to young Mr. Guthrie, who would actually love to go out for a bite. But first, he's got to pick up a few more gifts for his siblings. He is a Guthrie, which means he has like 47 siblings. Most of them have a name that starts with the letter J. Now he tells Hank and Trish that he'll meet them at the restaurant in like five minutes. Hank laughs and tells Trish that they'll probably never, ever see the kid again. And so we follow Sam over to FAO Schwartz, which, in fairness, is, is only like a five-minute walk from the tree at Rockefeller Center, though holiday foot traffic might slow him down a little bit. 
I want to say the last time I was at FAO Schwartz was uh, the first time that I'd ever seen the Beast Toy Biz action figure, which had eluded me for months at that point. Only, instead of it being like $5, like it would have been at Toys R Us at Kmart, it was like $15. FAO Schwartz is a very, very overpriced store, in case if you've never been there, it's wild. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't going to spend 15 bucks on an action figure because... In my, uh, you know, monkey brain, it's like, well, I could buy three for that price, so why am I going to buy one? So I passed on it. I did eventually find that action figure at a place called Service Merchandise, which, from what I can remember, it's a pretty weird place. It's kind of like a catalog store that you actually go to. Like, you go, and you're in this room, and you order from a catalog right there, and then they bring it to a window for you to pick up and pay for Unless I dreamt that. It is possible. I might be conflating some events in my brain, but I'm pretty sure that was the gimmick there. Anyway, back to the story. Sam heads towards FAO's while having an expositional chat with himself in order to get us all caught up on everything that's happened of late in the X-Books. Again, Onslaught is the biggie here. Professor X went bonkers, and most of the Marvel heroes had vanished. Um, Now, we covered bits and pieces of this during Cosmic Treadmill episode 146, where we spilled all the beans on the ex-trader. So, if you want to hear that, that's there. Uh, Also this year, presidential hopeful, anti-mutant activist, and son of Sabretooth and Mystique, Graydon Creed, was assassinated on live television. This occurred in a recent issue of X-Factor. Psylocke manifested that weird Crimson Dawn thing on her face. Uh, Archangel went back to his normal wings. Finally, Iceman skipped town to hang out with his uh, formerly mutant-hating father. I think they were kind of cool at this point. Um, I do remember, I think it was a cover of, like, Bobby holding his father's body. I think he had a heart attack or something. I think it might have been the issue right before this one. Whatever the case, it's been a busy year for the ex-folks. So, uh, Sam, he counts his blessings. He considers himself to be living something of a charmed life. You know, he's got his real family, the whole Guthrie clan, but he also has his ex-family. Plus, he got himself a recent promotion, which I'll probably spend more time talking about in just a little bit. Oh, oh, oh. Cameo, cameo. By the way, when Sam is walking to F.A.O. Schwartz, he passes the Punisher. So we got a cameo. So finally, our man makes it to the toy shop, and oh boy, is it a zoo. Kids are everywhere, parents are complaining, it's it's complete madness. Sort of like I'd imagine most toy stores would be, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, if toy stores were still things that existed outside of F.A.O. Schwartz, I guess. Uh, Sam is uh, immediately scoped out by an attractive associate who asks him if there's anything she can help him find. He asks for a certain silly named video game, which naturally has been sold out for months at this point. Suddenly, a great big, boring, purple portal opens up right there in the toy store. And from it emerges a great big, boring, purple mohawked idiot. Sam snags the cutie by her uh, ample handles and blasts her out of harm's way. Though he doesn't really seem to worry all that much about the kids running around. I I guess we all have our priorities in life. Naturally, as the cover told us, this is Gladiator. Now he palms Cannonball's dome like Shaq would a basketball and says he's looking for the X-Men, but Cannonball will have to do. Ouch. It's stone cold from Gladiator. I mean, especially coming from someone as boring as Gladiator is. Could you imagine being insulted by this guy? Or belittled by this guy? What a joke. Meanwhile, let's go somewhere else. Joseph and Rogue, they're on their carriage ride flying high above the New York City skyline. 
the driver is quick to realize that his fare here are, you know, probably mutants. Joseph offers to lower the carriage down back to the ground, but the driver asks him not to. This driver, you see, is very cool with the mutants. He knows they're just, you know, trying their best to live their best lives. He considers this night flight to be a Christmas miracle and isn't quite ready for it to end. Joseph asks that they be dropped off atop the World Trade Center. Now, on the way to the Twin Towers, the carriage passes by the offices at 387 Park Avenue South, where we get ourselves another cameo. It's not quite on the level of uh, Stan and Jack or Chris Claremont in X-Men 98. It's Bob Harris. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a gag where he's complaining that Scott Lobdell and Joe Matt are running behind on their next issue. The latter was probably too busy playing through Chrono Trigger for the fourth or fifth time at this point. But then he sees a flying sleigh and decides, hey, maybe it's time to call it a night. Now back uptown, Cannonball and Gladiator fight a whole bunch. Sam blasts Gladiator through some walls just to get him away from the populated areas here, which gives him a boost in confidence. Then suddenly, as Sam is thrusting, they just stop dead. Gladiator has halted Cannonball's cannonballing. Sam says that this is impossible, to which Gladiator, with a smirk, says that uh, uh, that's just a matter of perspective. Which, okay, is uh, pretty neat. I'll grant you that. Sam then thinks fast and uses Gladiator's own momentum against them and sends them both careening into a construction site below. And that's where we'll leave them for now. Let's head back over to the World Trade Center. Joseph has brought Rogue here to give her her Christmas present. Of sorts. He reveals that, for the past little while, he's been deconstructing a Xenox chamber. Uh, The Xenox were, or I suppose they still are, a Silver Age alien race. They'll probably wind up being the antagonist of an upcoming Marvel mass crossover, maybe Empire 2, the Dullening. He then explains a rather convoluted plan that he had to use this chamber to filter out mutant powers. Now you see... Xavier once used it to shield himself from the Xenox's psionic detection. Joseph theorizes that this might make it so the chamber will shield his own mind from Rogue if they were to make skin-to-skin contact. Now, he spends many, many dense panels trying to make this make sense, but the gimmick here is he asks Rogue if she trusts him. She says, sure. He wishes her a Merry Christmas and proceeds to kiss her on her forehead and she does not absorb his powers or his memories. It's a sweet scene. It's a very sweet scene, though part of me still wants to punch Joseph in the face for creeping in on Gambit's girl. Back to the fight, okay? Sam and Gladiator, well, well, they fight. Um, Gladiator threatens to throw Sam into the sun, and uh, Sam knows uh, dude ain't just talking here because this is a threat that he can actually follow up on. Then, in a somewhat confusing series of panels, Gladiator goes to hit Sam with his most powerful blow, which Sam shrugs off. The hell? With Gladiator in various levels of shock, Sam is able to clock him with a double axe handle, which sends the boring alien into another building, leveling the place to rubble, probably killing hundreds. Or maybe they never left the construction site, so maybe it's a Christmas miracle. I don't know. During the exchange... Sam thinks a lot about how Gladiator's power is fueled by his confidence, and so he'd be at his most vulnerable when his confidence is shaken. It almost makes sense, but it still feels like something's missing. We'll hold that thought. Off-panel, Sam is given a bravo from Beast, who thankfully fills us in on just what in the hell just happened. 
You see, Sam channeled all of his kinetic energy from Gladiator's killer blow and directed it into his own force field. Okay. I I mean, I'm not going to argue. I'm definitely not on the same intellectual level as Dr. Henry McCoy. We'll just take his word for it. Uh, Gambit and Bishop, they're also here, and they give Sam his kudos. Uh, Nice of them all to show up when the dust settles, isn't it? Uh, Talk about like a trial by fire for uh, poor young Sam here. Now, speaking of dust settling, Joseph shows up, and he starts stacking girders and stuff out of the way. Finally, Gladiator explains just what in the hell his problem is. It's uh, something going down in the uh, Imperial Guard miniseries, which is probably one of those books stocked on the uh, spinner racks in hell, probably right alongside Fallen Angels Volume 2 and Empire X-Men. Uh, apparently, the Shi'ar Empire is in grave danger. When are they not? Uh, Rogue is confused. You know, why did, he inta- why did he attack Cannonball unprovoked just to get their attention? It's like, it's not as though they never worked side by side before, right? Well, here's the thing. Gladiator doesn't really even explain. He just says he needs to bow out of this battle, and he wishes for the X-Men to go in his stead. He probably could have just asked. Then, he produces a half-dozen Krakoan gateway seeds. Oh, wait. No, no. It's a half-dozen transit spheres, which teleport five of our X-Men and Trish Tilby to the Shi'ar Empire. Cannonball asks why he can't go with his teammates, to which Gladiator says it's far too dangerous to send someone so young into this battle. Though a powerless news reporter is perfectly fine. We do wrap up with Gladiator suggesting that, should the X-Men fail, the Shi'ar Empire will fall, shortly followed by the rest of the universe. Now, we do have a fun letters page here uh, that you know follows the story, of course, which really makes me pine for these simpler, less internet-y times. <laughs> um, letters pages is something I'd love to go through on our main X-Lapsed program, but... Uh, it's probably not going to happen. Um, I guess I could hit up other reviews and grab some commentary for flavor, but so much of that is the uh, 10 out of 10, this writer's a bulletproof genius variety, which, honestly, I want no part of. Maybe if I discover a way to add a few hours to the day or a few days to the week, I can finally kick off that X-Lapsed Relapse show and we can discuss some honest-to-goodness letters pages in those. Or I suppose I could cover these letters pages here, but uh, I would definitely need a memory jog to talk about them with any sort of eloquence or authority. So we'll just leave that be. Um, But let's talk about the issue. Let's talk about what we just read. Another fun one. Another fun one totally in my wheelhouse, despite the fact that it came out while I was on my hiatus. And I mean, if you're a Joe Maguire fan, as I am, you're going to love the way this one looks, for sure. Now, uh... Just like last episode, let's get the Christmasness out of the way here. Um, this is definitely more a Case B scenario, in that the story takes place during Christmas, but it does have enough overlap to keep up the festivities, right? The Christmas trappings are definitely front and center throughout the f- you know the first half of the issue. Uh, we hang out by the tree, Sam shops a Schwartz, Joseph gives Rogue her gift, even the goofy Bob Harris scene was a nice reminder that this story was occurring during a... You know, to many, the most wonderful time of the year. Now, our primary focus in this issue is Cannonball, so let's talk a little bit about Cannonball. I'm on record as being very pro-promotion as it pertains to superhero teams. I really like the idea that newcomers aren't immediately added to the most elite teams in the universe, because I don't think that does a whole lot to help anybody. 
It makes the newcomer, who, let's be honest, uh, nowadays is more than likely just going to be a character derivative of an already existing character anyway. It's just going to make them feel like they're being jammed on our throats, right? It's not going to feel like they earned their spot among these legacy characters, these heavy hitters, these A-listers, right? With Cannonball, we've watched him kind of grow up in these books, right? He started as a new mutant, transitioned into X-Force, he took a leadership role, and then finally... He's promoted to the main roster. It really felt earned. It actually felt like it took too long, you know? So when it actually finally happened, it felt, I don't know, like vindication a little bit for uh, for the character. It felt You felt good for him. And it made it feel like being an X-Men would seem like something that a heroic mutant could and perhaps should aspire toward, you know? You're not going to get there right away, but you could. What's more, uh, there's this period here where Cannonball still feels the need to prove himself. And, I mean, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? I think many of us have been in positions professionally where maybe you've been promoted to a new job or a new level, and uh, you have that very uncomfortable and very wobbly feeling-out process, you know, where you really don't know what you're doing, but... You can't let everyone else know that. So what you do is maybe you fake it till you make it, right? Or maybe you focus on the things that you know you're good at until that switch flips in your head and everything finally comes together and you're accepted and you're comfortable in this role. Maybe I'm just projecting, but this is where I feel Sam is at currently. And the way they're doing this just works just so well. Uh, This is definitely a coming of age for Cannonball. And depicts him as being a pretty decent strategist as well as a powerhouse. Very, very well done. Very well done. Let's talk about the secondary focus for this issue, Joseph and Rogue. Okay, I'm definitely a Gambit and Rogue guy. Always have been, probably always will be. I love their date in X-Men Volume 2, Number 4. I absolutely adored the boysenberry pie (laughs) incident in X-Men Number 8, which I covered about a year and change ago here on the channel. I almost threw my copy of X-Men 24 across the room when Rogue almost told Gambit her real name, and he told her it didn't matter because, damn it, I really wanted to know what her name was. Uh, despite the fact that X-Men number 45 was the reason for my ex-hiatus, I did, in fact, love how Rogue and Gambit's story played out there. So yeah, big fan of this pairing. That said, though, this Joseph and Rogue deal is very well done. Um, Joseph is kind of like that guy, you know, uh, the guy who you've got this sneaking suspicion about and you just can't put your finger on quite why, I mean, discounting the whole magnetoness of the thing, of course, but he also has this certain charm. There's like an earnestness about him, so you can't outright hate the guy, and you might even think for a minute that Rogue would be better off with him. Now, this love triangle will build through Uncanny X-Men 350, which... I mean, talk about a shoe drop issue. Though, it was probably one of the worst-kept secret sorts of shoe drops, but a shoe drop nonetheless. Not really sure what Lobdell's plan for Joseph was, since he'll be given the boot or resign not all that long from now. So don't know if his original vision was kept with the eventual and underwhelming Joseph revelation. I think we did talk a little bit about Lobdell's um, process. I don't remember which episode it was. I think it was during a mailbag portion. But uh, Lobdell basically 
puts ideas out there, doesn't know how they're going to work themselves out, and he just hopes that they do. So maybe that was what Joseph was. Maybe Joseph was just, hey, this would be a neat idea, and then hopefully it'll get figured out. Unfortunately, he walked off the job or was booted off the job before he got the chance to. Now, the use of a Xenox chamber, though a bit convoluted, is also very creative. So hats off to Lobdell for digging deep on this one and actually having it make you know sense in a comic book sort of way. All that to say, this is a good scene. And I gotta say, Joe Mad draws a real, real good civilian rogue. Really, really good. Um, now, Gladiator is still quite dull. <laughs> and I recall not really caring for the Shi'ar story that follows this. Though, again, it's been a hair over 20 years since I last read it. I do appreciate how this issue, just like X-Men 98 before it, ends with the X-Men embarking on a space mission. I mean, that had to be intentional, right? This issue is as close to a straight homage to 98 as we're going to get without having our team attacked by Sentinels, right? I gotta say, it was really very cool to read these two issues in succession because uh, this one really feels like a tribute to what came before while keeping eyes toward the future. It's neat when you think about it. Lobdell's final Christmas with the X-Men mirrors Claremont's first. I think that's kind of special, though I really can't uh, put into words as to why I feel that, though, that the way that is. Overall, it was a heck of a good issue. A real feel-good story from the sort of long ago, and one that I'd encourage you to dig out and add to your Christmas reading rotation. The story, just like X-Men 98 before it, has a lot of heart, and it's just gorgeous to look at. Now, next episode, we're going to be taking a look at an issue of X-Men. I think, I think probably the issue of X-Men where most people's minds go when you think about X-Men Christmas issues. It's a pretty, you know, pretty famous one, so you'll probably know exactly the one I'm talking about, unless I'm completely in my own bubble here and just talking out my backside. Well, I guess we'll figure it out when we uh, when we get there, right? Then for our last two episodes, not sure where we're going yet. <laughs> not sure where we're going to wind up. Uh, the X-Men and the X-Adjacents have uh, celebrated a lot of Christmases. I know we're supposed to think like everything happened ten years within 10 years, but uh, we've had a lot more Christmases than that. But we will see in a, in a couple days where we're at. So I hope you're enjoying this little holiday break from the uh, the regular routine here. I know I am. <laughs> this has been a real treat to not uh, to not tread water in the Dawn of X uh, realm for a little while. I think this was a break that I needed. I don't think these uh, current year books are being written with an eye toward some marble-mouthed idiot devoting several hours of his day to uh, reading them a couple times over, writing a script longer than the issue itself, and then spending a lot of time uh, putting together shows for it. I think these are meant to be read, be enjoyed, and be put away. <laughs> you know, the X-Books these days, it's like you get three to six of them a week, right? So it's like you don't have much time to dwell. It's like, okay, I got through this one, let's get to the next one. A guy like me, I get through it the first time, I get through it a second time, and then I write a script and record a show about it, which uh, I think I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> but uh, we will get back to the... Uh, to our, you know, normal business uh, after the holiday. So, hope you're enjoying the break. Hope you're looking forward to the return of the regular stuff. Uh, so, hope you're having a good time. I know I am. So, uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me and tell me that you're having a good time with this, you could do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or Weird Comics History at Gmail.com is the uh, the email address for the program. 
You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on the Facebook group, 90s X-Men, and you can check out all the wonderful audio at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, which includes a lot of X-Men stuff and a lot of Christmas stuff, and now some Christmas with the X-Men stuff. I think we'll put a pin in it right there for today. Uh, next time, like I said, it's going to be uh, one you've probably at least seen the cover of. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing that one with you. But that'll be a discussion for then. So one more giant thank you for sharing your time with me uh, during this busy, busy holiday week. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. How's it? Ho, 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 and everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to day three of our Merry X-Lapsed week here. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, uh, I don't know if I gave it too big of a uh, build-up last episode, but uh, this is the one that I usually think of when I think of X-Men Christmas stories. It's not really all that Christmassy, but the cover is, so uh, it's one that I usually think of, and I usually remember it as being far more Christmassy than it actually is. Uh, so it's funny to actually sit down and uh, and write out a uh, a piece for this because yeah I, I thought that this was far more Christmassy than it actually wound up being but let's not waste any more time let's just get right on into Uncanny X Men number one hundred forty three this had a March nineteen eighty one cover date the story is called Demon by Chris Claremont and John Byrne with inks by Terry Austin, letters by Tom Wozachowski, colors Glennis Ween, edits Louise Jones, chief Jim Shooter, cover price 50 cents. And as mentioned, you know, we do look at the covers during this uh, uh, Merry X last week here, and we've actually got a Christmassy one here. In fact, it's probably the most Christmassy part of the entire issue. It's a classic, and I'm sure many of you have seen this one many times before, especially this time of year. People seem to like to share this one. Now, we've got Kitty Pride in her generic X-Men costume in the forefront, and she's scanning around with a flashlight. Behind her, we've got this big green, not-quite-Geiger alien. 
Uh, off to the left, which is our left, Katie's right, we see an actual honest-to-goodness Christmas tree with gifts underneath it. Really, really nice. Sadly, it doesn't appear inside the issue. Now, funny enough, despite the fact that this is only the second issue of this series where it's known as Uncanny X-Men, the Indicia changed with the issue right before this one, right? Uh, issue 142. So this is the second issue where this is officially Uncanny X-Men, and the word uncanny is missing from the cover. <laughs> it's replaced by Merry Christmas. So instead of Uncanny X-Men, it says Merry Christmas X-Men. Well, I thought it was interesting anyway. Now, we open with a not-so-Christmassy flashback to a story that wrapped up back in the not-yet-Uncanny X-Men number 96. Here we see uh, Storm battling back the Nagari demons? Najari demons? I don't know how to pronounce this. And here's another word I don't know how to pronounce. She ultimately destroys the Najari's Karn, or Karn, C-A-I-R-N, whatever that is, uh, which they believed was what the Najari demons were using as sort of a non krakowing gateway from their dimension to the 616. So bada-bing, bada-boom, the weird monolith, Karn, whatever, is smashed, and uh, the gateway is believed to be closed. Only problem is that one of the Najari demons managed to slink away as the dust settled. Maybe they'll uh, procreate and be the antagonist for Empire 3, Boredom's Revenge. And we fast forward to, I don't know, closer to present day. Maybe even present day. Where we see a pair of newlyweds, Douglas and Ellie, wandering into the wilderness to chop down their first Christmas tree as a couple. They find what they believe will be the best tree, which is a relatively tiny one, but uh, cute enough. Uh, before Doug gets to chopping, or, well, sawing, they share a great big hug. Then they hear a bit of rustling coming from another nearby tree. Assuming it's uh, just a little bit of wildlife, Doug goes to take a look. Only, this ain't no squirrel. It's an Ajari demon, which grabs him by the throat and spends the next couple of panels feeding on the poor lovers. <sighs> feeding on both body and soul. Very poetic monsters, these Najari, aren't they? We shift scenes to the mansion, uh, the danger room specifically. Professor X is cramming some knowledge into the newest X-Man, Kitty Pride, a.k.a. at this time, Sprite. This lesson is all about the Blackbird jet and how to go about the ignition process. And this will actually come around later on. Just you wait. Uh, Kitty's pretty bored and tired. It would seem as though these learning drills are getting a little redundant. Angel pops in to let Charles know that his car is ready, saving Kitty from any further Christmas Eve studying. Oh, I mean, it is, it's Christmas Eve, by the way, because isn't it always in these stories? We head to the foyer, where Logan has brought his lady friend, Mariko Yoshida, in to meet his friends. Nightcrawler pops in with a sprig of mistletoe and gives Mariko a peck on the cheek. This is something that Wolverine does not appreciate, and he actually swipes at poor Kurt with his claws out. What does he think he's doing, fighting the Fantastic Four? Come on. Colossus transforms into his metallic form to hold Logan back, while Professor X tries to get him to settle his decut a little bit. Wolverine ultimately comes around and apologizes, claiming that maybe his old habits die hard. Oddly enough, this exhibition of absolute rage doesn't seem to freak Mariko out a single bit. I figure if that was me, I'd be halfway back to the city at that point. Anywho. While the grown-ups continue to talk, Kitty sneaks over and picks up the mistletoe. She then holds the mistletoe over Peter's head and sneaks a kiss of her own, while calling him sexy. Oh my, in a code-approved book? Hmm. Colossus blushes 
big time, which Nightcrawler notices, and he suggests that had this kiss been anywhere other than on his cheek, Colossus probably would have passed out. And, uh, yeah, probably, but let's not think about other places Kitty might have kissed him, because uh, we don't want to do that. Anywho, the next several panels are dedicated to the various X-Men leaving the mansion to attend to their Christmas Eve plans. Warren even mentions Candy Southern, who's always a pip. Then finally, it's Home Alone, Kitty Pride Edition. Now, Kitty kind of freaks out. She's never been left in the mansion by her lonesome. And she's uh, also a bit saddened by the fact that this is her first Hanukkah that she spent without her folks. And, I mean, Hanukkah was actually over by a couple weeks at this point. We gotta assume that, uh, real time, this story was occurring in 1980. And in 1980, Hanukkah ran from December 2nd to December 10th, and again, this story is December 24th, so we're like two weeks two weeks removed here. Whatever the case, uh, Kitty decides to check in with her family, and so she heads over to the phone. There's no answer at the Pride home. Hmm, I wonder where they are. Now, as Kitty, as Kitty walks away from the phone, it starts to ring. So she thinks it's her folks, and she excitedly picks up. But it's Cyclops. He's just checking in. He'd left the X-Men ages ago. Well, okay, like five issues ago. But the way they're making the sound, as well as the next issue blurb that we get at the bottom of the last page of this issue, it says, The Return of Cyclops. I mean, you'd, you'd think he's been gone forever, but not really. Uh, Scott and Kitty have a nice, if not impersonal, chat. After the call, Scott heads over to a ship called the Arcadia, a ship that's in need of a crew and which is captained by a Lee Forrester. Now, much to Scott's surprise, he finds out that Captain Lee Forrester is a girl. Now, uh, Lee is short for. Oh, hell, how do I say this? Um, boy. Aletis? 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 I have no friggin' idea how you say this, but you know, if you know who I mean, then you know what I mean. Lee Forrester. Enough of them. Back to Kitty. Now, she's all dolled up in her generic X-Men costume, which, you know, is worlds better than the costume she'll eventually try and create on her own. She decides to have herself a training session in the Danger Room, and she gets to have herself an internal monologue about what great physical shape she's in. She sees herself as becoming a female Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's also worth noting that after she was left home alone, she did have another internal monologue about her genius-level IQ, so, uh... Yeah, she's not uh, lacking in the self de- self-esteem department, is she? Now, her training session is interrupted by the intruder alarm going off. A monitor informs her that there's a possible intruder in Zone 4 of the X-Mansion, which is apparently, like, Storm's attic, her little quarters, at least her, the sunroom, the hothouse, whatever, wherever she hides her garden. Kitty climbs on air to get there, because, remember, this is back in the day where the creators cared enough to realize that not everybody picking up these issues knew everything about these characters, so we'd get these little expositional fill-ins, and they're very much appreciated. When she finally reaches Storm's hothouse, she finds the windows smashed in and all the plants dead. Kitty then steps in a pile of green gunk, and then she's confronted by that Najari demon. Kitty bugs out, phasing through the floor, but is immediately followed by the demon, who can't phase all that well, but sure as hell can bash through the floor pretty good. The next couple of pages are a chase scene. Uh, Kitty's trying to get away from this bugger long enough to make an SOS call. She winds up hiding in the basement for a minute, hopeful that uh, the assorted odors down there might throw her pursuer off the scent. 
I don't know what the basement of the X-Mansion smells like, and now I don't think I want to. When she thinks the coast is clear, she makes her way back upstairs, and she goes for the phone. Only, the demon was there waiting for her and slashes right through her. Now, she manages to phase just in the nick of time. However, she still feels the pain as though she didn't. She manages to get away again. She's limping. Her arm has no feeling in it. It's, it's, she's in rough shape. She makes her way towards the danger room, hopeful that there might be a gimmick or two in there that she can employ against this monster. And the demon dutifully follows. Finally, Kitty has it where she wants it, and the danger room begins attacking. First, the Najari is pelted by... I don't know, a bunch of metal pipes. Then it's engulfed in flames. Then a bunch of, like, random torture things stuff flying around the place, spiked balls and whatnot. The problem here is that Kitty is just as susceptible to the dangers of the room herself. So she dodges the dangers and the claws of the Najari and is able to phase out of harm's way, at least for the moment. Kitty rushes toward the uh, Blackbird hangar while reflecting on the prior scene. She notes that the most effective thing against the demon that she noticed was the fire. And she compares that to something that she'd recently seen in a movie. And it's a movie that your humble host has never seen. And uh, even though she doesn't come right out and say it, I mean, it's Alien. She's talking about Alien. Now, Kitty gets to the mono car, which will, in theory, get her to the hangar within a minute. I didn't know they had a mono car. It's pretty cool. Unfortunately, the Najari has different plans here and derails the little car. Kitty still makes it to the hangar, however. Uh, She just had to hoof it for the second half of the trip. Our gal remembers her Blackbird ignition lessons and goes about setting her trap. She waits for the Najari to draw close enough, then, pow, she blasts it with the Blackbird thrusters. The jet itself crashes into the hangar, pretty much wrecking everything, but at least she killed the demon, right? Hmm... Well, Kitty exits the wrecked jet to survey the area and is very nearly swiped at by the Najari in what would turn out to be its last swipe before it dies. We shift scenes to later that night. Xavier, Storm, and Colossus have returned to the mansion and they've got a surprise for Kitty. It's her parents. They're here to celebrate Hanukkah two weeks late. Now, Kitty's still awake and she's both relieved and excited to see her friends to the point where she doesn't even notice that her folks are there for a panel or two. We wrap up with Storm pulling Kitty aside to ask just what in the hell happened to the place. She'd already seen the damage to her attic garden. And so Kitty spills the beans. The attic's wrecked, the danger room is smashed, the monocar is toast, the blackbird's a goner, the hangar's kaput. She had a busy night. She then asks if Storm is mad at her, to which Aurora suggests that perhaps she should be. But something's telling her that uh, she should instead be proud of her. We close out by zooming in on the crispy critter below and the suggestion that, had this been a test, Kitty would have passed with flying colors. And that's the story, but it ain't the end of the issue. We have a letters page, which, you know, discusses stories that we haven't covered here, but it also has a little blurb from Chris Claremont himself here. This is a very important issue for many reasons. Let's let Mr. Claremont say it. Quote, We open with an announcement, one that in many ways I wish I didn't have to write. As many of you no doubt know, this having been widely reported in the various comics news magazines, John Byrne has resigned as penciler on the X-Men. This is his last issue. It is also Terry Austin's last issue as inker on the book. In all my years as a writer, I have never worked with as good a creative team, as nice a pair of people as John and Terry. Together, they reach Olympian levels of artistic quality and consistency. 
they will be missed. That's the sad news. Now for the good stuff. After next issue's superlative interim art job by, friend of this channel, Brent Anderson, one of the finest young pencilers working in comics today, the penciling reins will be returned to the man who co-created the new X-Men in the first place, Dave Cockrum. His initial issue is already finished, and believe me, it's a knockout. Nothing lasts forever, and any change, no matter how beneficial it may turn out to be, is wrenching. Dave's departure three years ago closed the first chapter on the history of the new X-Men. John and Terry's departure closes the second. I wish them well. And I really look forward to see what the next three years will bring. Your response to this book has been really phenomenal. I and Dave intend to keep it that way. Unquote. So, it's kind of like we're holding a piece of X-History in our hands here, right? Pretty cool. And I'd forgotten that John Byrne was gone quite this early. I, it's like I always have to remind myself that Days of Future Past was kind of the Claremont Burn Swan song. Unfortunately, I don't have any of those, uh, like, fan mags that, uh, the, uh, that Claremont alludes to here. Uh, my fan mag of choice was Amazing Heroes, which didn't even launch until probably, like, three or four months after this. I do believe... Uh, yes, John Byrne's uh, Fantastic Four is actually the cover of the first issue here, so... He'd already left the X-Men, so I didn't get... I don't have any of the gestalty goodness of uh, what people thought of, uh, of Byrne and Claremont's split and uh, who's, you know, whose sides people took and uh, how people felt after Byrne left uh, regarding the quality. I, 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 you know, it's, that's the kind of stuff that interests me, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll find out. I'm sure I've got something somewhere in this, these piles of magazines that will help me find some answers here. I just don't have the time to dig through them right now. But uh, all that to say, this is an important issue for more reasons than, uh, than I thought going into it. Now let's talk about the issue. Here's the thing about this issue. This is an issue that I would tell anyone to go out of their way to find an experience because it's both a great character piece for Kitty it's wonderfully tense uh, a story, and it's both really well-written and expertly drawn, right? I mean, there's nothing not to recommend here. The problem with it is, is at its core, it's a chase scene, which, no matter how much I liked it and implore all of you to check it out if you haven't already, makes it a hard issue to talk about, right? <laughs> I mean, there really isn't a whole lot to say. I think we'll find some stuff to talk about, but, um, I mean, at its core, this is a chase scene. And uh, regarding that, we could actually talk a little bit more about some behind-the-scenes stuff. Not the Byrne vs. Claremont thing, but some of the inspiration that Claremont and Byrne drew from a certain science fiction motion picture. Now, John Byrne was quoted in Comics Creators on the X-Men. It's a, it's a book from Titan Books. Um, it's kind of out of date at this point, but I still highly recommend it for any fans of the X-Men. It's something I refer to a lot, and uh, I referred to a lot during the, uh, the treadmill days. A lot of great information there. A lot of uh, quotes that you won't find anywhere else. Um, I think it came out probably uh, 2004-ish, because I think the newest creator that was interviewed in there was probably uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller, who were on New X-Men and Ultimate X-Men, respectively, at the time. But a really, really good book if you can find it. You could probably get it for dirt cheap. Um, uh, Tom DeFalco was the, uh, was the driving force behind it. It's really good stuff. Anyway, let's get to the quote here. John Byrne says... We wanted to do an homage to the movie Alien. 
And I didn't, I, I don't know whether I was demented or what in those days, but I honestly thought when I was drawing it that people wouldn't instantly realize where we got it from. I thought I was being really clever, how I was making little twists and turns to change it. Only the ending, where she used the blackbird to blast the Najari to death, was the same. And then Chris kind of wrote the script to even more like the movie. By the time I actually read it, I was like, oh well, wait till the lawsuits come. But they never did. Well, like I've said time and time again, I can't sit still long enough to watch a movie, and so I haven't seen Alien, though. I'll take John Byrne's word for it. I'm also pretty sure I've read that Kitty Pride's look was based on a young Sigourney Weaver, so uh, there's another similarity there. But I mean... You take the good with the bad here. I, I guess if Chris and John swiped from Alien, we might suggest that ten years later, Home Alone swiped from this issue. Because, uh, like, Macaulay Culkin was being chased around by demons, right? In my head canon, he was, anyway. But, uh, in all seriousness, this is a really good issue. Um, Kitty was still a very new character at this point. She just barely joined the team four issues earlier, in the just-barely-not-yet-uncanny X-Men number 139, which is one of the few issues from that era that I still don't own. Um, this is a heartbreaker. This, this, this sucks because this is an issue that not too long ago I saw for $5 and I passed on it because I thought I already had it. I don't know why I thought I already had it, but I thought I already had it, so I didn't buy it. I mean, I am a hoarder of sorts, but I'm not the sort that would actually hoard multiple copies of the same issue. I think that's... Not a cool thing to do, uh, especially if you find something really special for really cheap. I feel like you share the wealth with other people, with other, uh, you know, bin divers and, and comic hunters. You don't pull it all for yourself because that's kind of a jerk move. I just don't do that. All that to say, I almost had this, the issue where she joined, but I passed on it. And uh, it's happened to me a few times. Um, a long time ago, I left X Factor number 24 in a uh, 50 cent bin. And that's, like, the first cover appearance of Archangel. Because I thought I owned it. I, I carry around little lists. Back then, I was carrying around index cards. Which made me look probably really, really cool. Having, like, a back pocket full... It probably looked like I was a smoker or something. You know, I got a pack of cigarettes in my back pocket, but it was actually a stack of index cards about what comics I needed. I was a super cool guy. And now I just keep it on, like, a like a OneNote file on my phone. So it's it's easier to... You know, easier to see, but it's also easier for me to, like, misread things because it's so small on the screen, and I might accidentally delete something. And I'm thinking that's what happened with this uh, uncanny, or not yet uncanny, 139. I think I accidentally just ticked it off, and I did not buy it, which, yeah, I'm kicking myself for. Anyway, <laughs> now, this uh, 143 here is one of the issues where I wish I could experience it as the readers of the day did. Because I'm sure the first time that I read this was probably, God, uh, turn of the century in an, in an Essentials volume. But by then, I already know who Kitty is. I, I, I already saw her as an established member of the X family. She's been on several teams. She's been around. I mean, sure, it was cool to see her as a kid here, but I think it would have been far more special had I not known what she'd go on to be, right? Joining Excalibur, coming back to the X-Men, being... You know, an elite of the group. Here she's a kid, and... I mean, I'm not like I'm criticizing the issues. It's just something that sort of is. And it would have been... In my head, it would have been far more satisfying to read had I not known everything that came after it. Can't change that. Nobody's fault. Just a thing. Now, if we're using our Christmas ranking system, this one would be out of Group B. 
is a story that occurs during Christmas time, but isn't so much about Christmas. As Christmassy as it gets, outside the cover is the mistletoe scene. Which, hey, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the mistletoe, mistletoe scene. Yeah, Wolverine's a damn psychopath, isn't he? Uh, I mean, let's say he made contact with Nightcrawler, okay? He, he swiped at him with his claws out. He would have killed him, right? He would have surely killed him. Now, if you've listened to X-Lapsed, you'll know I'm not a huge fan of Wolverine swiping with his claws out at other heroes. We saw during X-Men Fantastic Four, that miniseries, that Logan likes him some claws out swiping. And I do get the allure of drawing the scenes like that, but it kind of ignores just how dangerous this character is, right? I mean, there's a difference between punching someone who ticks you off and gutting them, right? I could see Logan wanting to deck Kurt for kissing his girl, but eviscerating him? <laughs> I mean, that's a bit much, right? I mean, let's think of it this way. What would the Quiet Council say? They'd probably throw him on the Hellions team. That's just craziness. Um, Colossus getting smooched by Kitty was... You know, I don't know. I've always thought this relationship was a little bit skeevy. And that's probably a result of my coming into the fandom when I did. I've always viewed Colossus as being not just a little bit older than Kitty, but like a lot older. Like, if there were an X-Men Thanksgiving, she'd be they'd be sitting at different tables, right? Kitty would be with, like... The New Mutants and Artie and Leech, while Peter would be with Storm and Wolverine. So in my head, they're from, like, different X-Generations. So having Kitty kiss him while referring to him as sexy, and then seeing Peter's blushing reaction, is kind of weird. And I know, I know they recently were engaged, almost married. I don't know how that all played out. That was during my latest hiatus. But uh, I know that they're more contemporaries now. I know that it's not... I know, what's-his-face, uh, Whedon. Joss Whedon did, like, a whole thing where they got together. And I, I think he even had them bang, because, of course, we need that. I still see them as being d- different. <laughs> now, Nightcrawler's suggestion about the kiss being more intimately placed, it's a little little skeevy as well. Uh, overall, uh, this is a great little horror riff and a wonderful getting-to-know-Kitty Pride issue. The opening bit with the Najari killing that happy couple was a great way to set the stage, right? It shows how dangerous this demon is, while also giving us a little bit of dread about what might be to come. Getting into Kitty's head was excellently done. Thought balloons are something that are sorely missed nowadays, because all of our genius-level writers are now writing for film and Netflix adaptations rather than just writing comic books. We don't get them anymore. They're considered passé or too comic booky. Stories like this really show how effective the thought balloon is when it comes to telling a story. And stories like this only make me miss them in contemporary comics even more. Sure, these pages are densely packed with words. It is Chris Claremont, after all. But you can't say you don't get your money's worth here. And you also can't say we don't grow closer to Kitty as a character as a result of being in her head for 20-odd pages here. You really get the feeling like you know this person. You know what's going on in their mind. You know what they're afraid of. You know what they feel about themselves. We should have more of this. We should have more of this. The chase scene, while, I mean, it was a chase scene, was done so well that it never felt boring. Byrne absolutely killed it here. 
every panel is bursting with action, fear, tension, dread, urgency, you name it. I mean, this is just so well done. It's just a little hard to synopsize, and that ain't anybody's fault but my own for, for doing it in the first place. Overall, again, if you're an X-Men fan, chances are you've already read this one probably several times over. If you, for whatever reason, have not, maybe use this holiday as an excuse to treat yourself. It's a great issue and a nice little cap to the Claremont Burn austin era of the Uncanny X-Men. Definitely, definitely highly recommend it. Check it out this time of year, any time of year. It's a good story. It's a great story. But that's all I got to say about it. So uh, if anybody out there would like to talk about it uh, with me, please feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about comics and Christmas and Christmas and comics and anything you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can check out the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Once again, I hope everyone's enjoying this little vacation from uh, Krakoa. Sometimes you just have to get away. Even if you're leaving paradise, it's still kind of a vacation. Um, hope you're all enjoying it. Uh, thank you all so much for sharing your time with me during this busy holiday week. It really, really means a lot to me. And as always, I will uh, talk to you all again real soon. See ya. How's it? Uh, ho, 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 and everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to day four of Merry X Lapsed, uh, where if you're listening in real time, well, this episode is hitting on Christmas Eve. So uh, if you are listening in real time, I very much appreciate it. I know it's probably a pretty busy, hectic day, so it uh, means a lot to me that you'd uh, make some time to uh, spend with me. So thank you. Um, now, if you are listening in real time, I'm probably in the kitchen right now. I'm working on a big feast here. I'm, I allow myself two big meals during the uh, the year. Uh, one is Thanksgiving, the other is Christmas Eve. I have a little tradition around here where 
There's, there's an Italian tradition called the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Unfortunately, I don't do seafood. I don't eat fish, so uh, I'll have fish sticks and I'll have tuna. But uh, other than that, I don't I don't do fish. So I have something that I call the Feast of the Seven Dishes, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, seven courses that I cook uh, every Christmas Eve for uh, for friends and family and stuff. And while it'll be a bit of a smaller gathering this time for, you know, the reasons we all know of, uh, I still uh, didn't want to let it go by. So I guess with fewer people coming over, it'll just be uh, more food I'm sending home with people so I don't have it in the fridge as a temptation for the next uh, week and a half. So that's where I am if you're listening to this in uh, real time. But enough of that. Let's get to the reason why we're here today, and it is to discuss... A pretty horrible comic book, if I'm being honest here. Um, We're going to be taking a look at X-Men, Volume 2, number 109. This had a February 2001 cover date. The main story is called Ceremonies, and it's written by Chris Claremont. This is part of the the return of Chris Claremont. This is actually the end of the return of Chris Claremont to the uh, main two books. Uh, Pencils, Tom Derenick, inks, Rick Ketchum, and Norm Rapmond. Uh, colors are by Liquid, Letters, Richard Stockings, and Comic Crafts, Seda Tamafante. Edits, Pete Franco, Mark Powers, and Joe Quesada. This is very early in the Gemis and Quesada uh, regime, I suppose we could say. Now, this had a cover price of $3.50, which sounds like a lot for a turn-of-the-century era book. And, uh, yeah, it is a lot, but... Uh, There's a reason for that, and that is because this is part of a line of books that Marvel was putting out around the time called 100-Page Giant, which featured a new story and then two or three reprints, Uh, which, I mean, for the time, you know, the internet wasn't quite what it is today, and the availability of digital comics wasn't quite as plentiful as it is today, uh, both legally and uh, other ways. So getting reprints was, uh, you know, the only way you'd see some of these older stories. Uh, We weren't quite so flushed with uh, collected editions back then either. So for a lot of folks, this is as good as it's going to get. Now, we could talk about all four of the the stories that are involved in this issue, but as luck would have it, we've already talked about the back three. And uh, this was not planned, because had it been planned, my week of uh, digging through long boxes would have been... uh, Well, I wouldn't have had to, because I would have just pulled them all from this very issue, so this was kind of a surprise to me. Now, let's get into the story, and first, as we've been doing for the past few episodes, we're going to look at the cover. And we actually get a Christmassy cover here. It looks like a Polaroid picture of a Storm, Wolverine, Gambit, Colossus, Psylocke, and I'm going to assume Rogue, though if it is Rogue, it's a wildly generic take on her. Uh, It's drawn by Lionel Francis Yu, who we are all familiar with from our Dawn of X reading. Now, all the characters here, except Gambit, are wearing Santa hats, and Colossus is carrying an already decorated Christmas tree over his left shoulder. It's even less interesting than I'm making it sound. Um, It's in black and white, and the only things in color are the red Santa hats and uh, Betsy's weird crimson dawn marking on her face. But, you know, it is a Christmas cover, so we will allow it. Now let's open up the uh, the book here and see what we got. We open on Lookout Knob in Salem Center, where the X-Men are engaged in a snowball fight. 
And this is a snowball fight that lasts like a half dozen pages. Um, and I, I suppose it does a decent enough job of letting us know who we'll be focusing on for this holiday outing. Though, uh, you know, the X-Men baseball games are probably the better way to do this. But given the season, what are you going to do? Now we've got Thunderbird. That is the new Thunderbird, or the new new Thunderbird, if you will. Uh, this is kind of the big character of the Claremont return, Neil Shara. We're going to come to find out that he's a pretty good he's pretty good arm with a snowball, you know. Uh, he's teamed with Iceman and Nightcrawler, who's using an image inducer, um, which is a reminder of how often they used to use him in image inducers back in the day. I can't think of a time in recent stories where they're employed or employed quite as much. As a matter of fact, we're going to see Beast using one in, as well in just a few pages. Now, Iceman is kind of a gimme for a snowball fight, right? Even if they're playing with a no-powers rule. I mean, how are you going to prove it? Now, they're pitted against a team of Colossus, Angel, and Psylocke. The latter of whom really seems to have the hot pants for Mr. Neil Shara. She actually seems to have the just plain hot pants for a number of dudes during this issue. So, after a few pages of paffing each other with snowballs, our scene, and perhaps one of our X-Men, finally climaxes. Uh, Betsy somehow winds up on top of Thunderbird and is uh, straddling him pretty good. Uh, he reverses it and flips her over, and he's now straddling her. Uh, they're, they're basically dry-humping at this point. To which Bobby turns to Warren is and is like, Hey, bro, isn't that your girl? Uh, Warren shrugs it off, and he says Betsy can do whatever the hell she wants with whoever the hell she wants. Then, Rogue and Gambit saunter on up. Rogue warns Thunderbird that he's eking in on a woman who's already been spoken for. And he just blushes and states, for the record, that Betsy is a remarkable woman. Rogue suggests that she's never seen Betsy look at a man the way she looks at Neil. Which, I mean, it's kind of sad, isn't it? Imagine, the, the great love of your life is the third Thunderbird. The one that nobody except people like us can remember. Rogue repeats her warning, saying that uh, she can't stop them from doing whatever they're going to do which is probably just a no-pants version of their rolling around in the snow right now, she just says that uh, she, he ought to know that there are consequences to every action. Her lecture is then thankfully stopped by a splitting headache. And not ours, hers. She has a splitting headache. We might too, but we're not important. Now you see, the thing here is Rogue's powers have been kind of on the fritz of late. Uh, she's involuntarily manifesting powers from ev anyone she's ever touched. Whereas usually, except for Carol Danvers, uh, those lingering powers and memories appear to fade over time. Now, the only stolen mutant power that she has any control over is... Snicked, the ability to pop a set of bone claws. This is Claremont, right? I mean, are we sure we're not reading Howard Mackey? Or did, we, did we accidentally pick up a, a, an issue of Mutant X or something? Uh, okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> The other X-Men tell Rogue to put her claws away, and uh, since they're hanging out with a bunch of locals who would probably prefer not to see them, you know, sticking out, Rogue doesn't care. Neil suggests that Rogue maybe see uh, if the Professor can help her, to which she's all, uh, duh, don't you think I tried that already? Idiot. Betsy pops over to try to squash the situation by asking if anyone would like to go for some hot cocoa. And so, a cocoaing we will go. Rogue talks a bunch about the odd evolution of her powers, and uh, oddly enough, she's just a few months short of being part of that Morrison secondary mutation wave. I'm pretty sure that before long, Rogue will actually be completely powerless for a spell, 
In fact, a handful of the folks we're going to be hanging out with today are just a few months away from some major and some fatal changes. Now, Betsy reflects back to a chat that she and Rogue had after Senator Kelly's wife died back in the long ago, if only to remind us that Senator Kelly himself just died. Neil compares his Hindu faith to Professor X's dream for probably no other reason than to remind us that he's Hindu, I think. This somehow facilitates Rogue sharing that Gambit went outside to speak with Rogue. Uh, This is really a hodgepodge of a scene here, uh, where... Like, we had a place we needed to get to, but getting there was like jumping backwards through flaming hoops. Uh, so let's just let's just leave it and go to the Gambit and Storm scene, right? They're outside and they're ice skating. As are Beast and Trish Tilby, uh, the former, of course, using an image inducer. And hell, I mean, for all I know, they both are. Now, here's the thing. Storm wanted to have this particular chat with Gambit amid a big crowd because... Telepaths evidently do not like crowds, and what she has to discuss is something she'd prefer not get back to the professor. Now you see, recently it's been discovered that Destiny, Irene Adler, kept diaries. Thirteen of them, in fact. Uh, One probably talked about Krakoa being a thing that it is currently, unless she just didn't bother to write that one down. Maybe she just told Mystique about it, but... Some of these diaries are in hand. Professor X has a couple of them. I believe uh, Storm might have one of them. The rest of them are missing. And Storm feels like, in the wrong hands, such as, perhaps, Xavier's, these diaries could cause everything to go sideways. Now, Hank takes great offense to the idea that Professor X would do anything untoward, to which Gambit reminds him that, you know, like just like a couple of years ago, that whole onslaught thing happened, so maybe... Let's, you know, let's pull Charlie off the pedestal here. Hank and Remy very nearly come to blows over this until Trish Tilby forces herself between them. Storm tells Hank to uh, consider this a way of actually helping the professor. Which, I mean, if we squint and tilt our heads sideways, kind of makes sense, maybe? I don't know. From here, we shift to a bunch of weird, weird one-page stories. Um... It's quite jarring, and feels like a sort of desperate and inorganic way to tie off some loose ends. Very, very bizarre here. We're going to first go with Nightcrawler, who, for some reason, is part of a trapeze act with Cerise. Okay, uh, well, the gimmick here is, he's a priest, right? We know that. Well, it looks like Cerise is all, you can have your faith, or you can have me, but not both. Which is kind of a dick move, isn't it? Now, Nightcrawler expresses that he loves Ceres, but to him, all of that love comes from God, so it's a no-go. From here, Nightcrawler will uh, become part of the uncanny X-Men roster. He'll eventually find out that his father is Azizel the Demon, or the Devil, uh, and he will get tied up in a church that hands out explosive communion wafers. (sighs) Maybe he should have gone with Ceres, huh? Hmm. Our next scene features Colossus, who is also part of a circus. Is this even really happening, or are we just part of a communal hallucination at this point? I I don't know. Anyway, he's dressed like a clown. Like, literally, he's got a painted face, you know, on. He's, He's a clown. And he's fighting off, like, clown versions of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Okay, and they're throwing pies at one another. A 16 ton weight like the kind you see in a cartoon, smashes into the stage, supposedly representing the bartender of the Green Lagoon, right? And the crowd applauds. 
Colossus looks into the audience, and since this is a solo Colossus scene, he mistakes a young blonde girl for his, at the time, still dead sister, Ilyana. Because of course he did. This was basically Colossus's defining characteristic at this point, and for many years before. From here, Colossus would go on to become a part of the roster of Dead. Uh, he's just a month or so away from sacrificing himself to cure the legacy virus, and he'll be gone until the Buffy guy decides that he wants to slum it in comics closer to the middle of the decade, so we won't be seeing him for a little while. Our next little vignette uh, features Archangel and Psylocke, where they spend two pages breaking up. Betsy seems to want both Warren and Neil, but Warren ain't digging this uh, thruple vibe here. Uh, what a spoil sport, right? Hmm. Now, it's worth noting here that Warren's costume is perhaps the most heinous part of this quite horrid issue. They wish, wish each other well and all that. Uh, from here, Warren would uh, join the Uncanny team, where he'll eventually deflower a teenager right in front of her parents. He'll also get a secondary mutation where his blood becomes like a cure-all. I guess this is before Elixir showed up to, to do the gimmick right. Betsy will go on to join the roster of Dead. Um, Claremont will knock her off in the opening arc of his Extreme series, which this is all leading toward, fully intending to revive her not too long after, only to be told by the current brass of Jemison Casada that, quote, Dead is dead, unless you're the Buffy guy slumming it in comics a handful of years later. Next vignette features Bishop, who spends a page punching a car. He delivers toys to a fire station in Brooklyn when some bank robbers come driving down the street, and so Bishop beats up their car. Uh, the firefighters realize that Bishop is probably a mutant, but hey, they like him just the same. Truly a Christmas miracle. Bishop would go on to join the extreme team and uh, straighten his hair. Next, Wolverine and... Uh, I'm telling you, this feels so disjointed, doesn't it? We're just all over the place here. Uh, Wolverine is in Japan. He's at the gravesite of Mariko Yoshida. Probably since it is Christmas time, he's reflecting on that one Christmas where he almost killed Nightcrawler for kissing her on the cheek. He's soon joined by Viper, who was recently revealed as being Wolverine's wife, in another bordering on unreadable Claremont story. They chat for a bit before Viper hands over a box. In it is one of Wolverine's bone claws, one that belonged to Kitty Pride. Now, Logan takes this as a sign that Kitty is okay. Okay, now this might warrant a little bit of explanation, and I will do my best. You see, this second Claremont run started with the X-Men dealing with a group called the Neo. They were advanced mutants, whatever the hell that means. Basically, if you look at it like, you know, what mutants are to humans as the next step... The Neo were to mutants as the further next step, right? They are the next step up from mutants. It's a decent enough concept, but honestly, how in the hell do you make it work in practice? We've already got mutants that are, you know, amazingly powerful. Omega levels. I don't, I don't think Omega level had been coined just yet, but you know what I mean. So what could possibly make the Neo special? The answer to that is quite simple. Nothing. They weren't special. They had regular mutant powers, but we were supposed to believe that they were more. I think one of them had the ability to, like, like lock people in buildings. Like, seriously. That was his gimmick. His power. And that was the next step up from mutants. I don't know. Well, it was alluded to that Kitty might actually be a Neo. Or was maybe switched at birth with one. Uh, something just as convoluted. Uh, Claremont never got the opportunity to follow up on this, uh, and so he just had Kitty vanish at the start of the run, and she was just gone. 
I, I think she was supposed to play a pretty huge role in the this second Claremont run, but she was gone really, really early. I mean, they even gave her like this all new look where she had like a, a spiky short haircut, a domino mask, and some gloves that had Wolverine's broken off bone claws on them. So it's like they actually had big plans, for at least what you'd think. So getting back to Viper's gift here, this bone claw might have been a message, right? It's still really weird. Uh, now, Kitty would remain limboed for a bit before resurfacing in a miniseries called Mechanics with an X, where we would see her in either college or grad school back in Chicago. From here, she'd hook up with the Extreme team, and uh, I don't think any connection between she and the Neo was ever clarified or confirmed from that point on. Now, Wolverine would join the new X-Men roster and uh, grow the most righteous of early 2000s facial hairstyles, the Soul Patch. Our next cameo or vignette or whatever it is is Rogue and Gambit, and they're walking through Salem Center. They come across a defaced nativity scene that was made with what looks like X-Men action figures out of respect for Senator Kelly, who came around to liking mutants before he died? <sighs> this is silly. Uh, <laughs> whatever the case, it's covered with anti-mutant graffiti. According to the nearby kids, this was done by the same people who trashed a nearby menorah. You know, to really drive the point home to the slower among us. I swear, I gotta keep flipping back to the cover to make sure we're not reading, like, a Mutant X annual or something. This is This is rotten. Uh, Rogue suddenly manifests Cyclops' optic blast, which she cannot control. And so she flies into the sky to, like, unload it in safety here, so she's not going to hurt nobody. The nearby kids who, you know, like two seconds ago loved mutants, well, they freak the F out. Now, this causes Gambit to comment how embracing those who are different in theory is one thing, but being faced with the realities of differences is quite another. Did, did we all survive the raining down of anvils? I sure hope so, because we're not done yet. Anyway, Rogue and Gambit would go on to be side players in the Extreme book, and they'll both be completely depowered for a bit. And so we finally, finally wrap up these, these vignettes, and we arrive at Xavier's, where everyone we just vignetted with, along with about 7,000 words and narration captions, are uh, gathered for the Christmas festivities. Um, they're all posing by the stairway with the professor, just to prove that they're all on the same side. After which, Storm pulls a handful of them aside so they could talk about seceding from the team. She lays out the mission statement for this new team, which is tracking down Destiny's diary. Which, uh, spoiler alert, is something that her new team will never actually endeavor to do. Now, her new extreme team will include Rogue, Beast, who only agrees to join up in order to keep Aurora honest, whatever that means, and what that does turn out to mean is not much, because uh, he will join Morrison's new X-Men team right away. He spends like three issues with the Extreme team. Uh, we got Thunderbird the Third, got Psylocke, Bishop, and Gambit? Well, maybe not Gambit, because Rogue says he can't join. Why? Who knows? She says she doesn't want Remy to get hurt, which, I mean, aren't they all superheroes? Yeah, whatever. Wolverine pipes up to ask Storm why she didn't choose him, to which she says she'll need him at the home front. His mind is uh, apparently impossible for Xavier to read, even though I'm pretty sure it's not. He'll act, Wolverine that is, as a liaison between the extremes and the rest. This will go nowhere. Storm then introduces us to the other member of her team, Sage. 
Wolverine's all, hey, that's Tessa from the Hellfire Club. Just to remind us all that, yes, this is Tessa from the Hellfire Club. Storm assures him, and us, I suppose, that Sage is good people. What she doesn't warn us, however, is that Sage is terribly boring people as well. Sage is decked out in a, uh, like a bondage catsuit, by the way, which is perfect Christmas party attire. We jump ahead to the gift exchange. Ooh, this is exciting stuff. Beast gives Trish Tilby something special that we don't get to see. Gambit gives Rogue something that makes her cry that we don't get to see. Psylocke gives Neil something that makes him blush that we don't get to see. I mean, I can only assume it's like a pair of her panties or something. I mean, what, what could it be? What, what would make him blush? I don't know. Professor X then gives Bishop a copy of Tale of Two Cities, which we do see, which I'm guessing is supposed to be seem far deeper than it actually comes across as. I don't know. Outside, Storm gets a gift from somebody. It's addressed, quote, to my Windrider. Gotcha. And it's a new costume, and uh, I'd really need a memory jog to remember who Aurora was romantically entangled with at this point. Um, maybe it's Forge, maybe it's Yukio. Who knows? We close out with Storm joined by Professor X outside, and they talk about the legacy of the X-Men. What Storm doesn't tell him that uh, is she's quitting, and she's taking a bunch of his most trusted X-Men with her. And we're out of here. Thus ends the second Claremont run. Oh boy, but the book itself is not done yet. Remember, this is a 100-page giant, and the stories that follow are the one in X-Men 98, followed by Uncanny X-Men 143, followed by Uncanny X-Men number 341. So if you want to hear all the discussion about that, you can check out the last three episodes. Just listen to them out of order. Again, this was not planned. (laughs) Because if it was, I would have only had to pull this one book. So I wouldn't have been digging and moving boxes and wrenching my back trying to move uh, long boxes here. So the good news is if you guys want to follow along, all you got to do is pull this one issue. So it's good stuff. But uh, let's talk about it. You know, the first story here. We've already talked about the other three. Let's talk about the first story. And, uh, well, it was no good, was it? Um, it's really kind of like a shining example of any everything that went wrong with the Claremont return. Um, it feels instantly dated. I remember back when I was reading this the first time around, it just felt so old-fashioned and not in a good way. Character motivations are sort of all over the place. It's one of those eras where I like to say, rather than throwing a single strand of spaghetti at the wall to see if it'll stick, they just threw the bowl. And the spaghetti already had sauce on it, right? So it's just it just left a mess. It was no good. I feel like, in fairness, Claremont was kind of stuck between two worlds here. He's trying to remain true to his old style, but adding like a turn-of-the-century sensibility to it, as if that makes any sense. His old style, which was really good. I mean, it worked for the lion's share of his initial, you know, 16-year run. Here, though, in an era where it's less cool to write comic books as though they're, you know, comic books, I feel like he was almost writing with something of a handicap. We've talked a lot about thought balloons uh, during this, uh, you know, Merry X last week here. There are none. And so all exposition had to come across as through forced and awkward dialogue. Also, Claremont's getting older, but he's still writing relatively young people, which leads to either some anachronistic lingo or poor and out-of-touch use of contemporary vernacular. Plus, he's really got this hot-on for uh, Thunderbird, who nobody cared about, ever, and nobody ever will. From what I've read about the shake-up at this point, Claremont was kind of given two options. He was told he could either stick with Uncanny X-Men, 
uh, giving up, you know, X-Men Volume 2, but he would have to play along with Grant Morrison's new X-Men storylines. Or he can get his own third flagship series, kind of on its own, where he could do whatever the hell he wanted. We all know he chose the latter, and it was probably the best choice for him, but... Man, the road to get there is paved with awkward scenes, isn't it? I mean, the extreme book, stupid title and all, had a great concept. Uh, tracking down Destiny's diary sounds like a heck of a motivation and, and you know, a particularly fun MacGuffin hunt, right? You never know what we're going to find out. If they do find one of these diaries, we might find some really interesting predictions and theories. And it seems like a lot of stuff we could dig our teeth into. Only they never actually got around to doing the thing. And Extreme ran something like 50 to 60 issues, if we include, you know, a couple of miniseries, one-shots, and the mechanics mini. Now, in order for this soft schism to make any sense, we have to buy into the fact that Storm no longer trusts Xavier. We also have to buy into the fact that Xavier is so out to lunch that he doesn't know what's going down right under his own nose. It's awkward, it's forced... And it feels a lot more cloak and dagger than it really needs to be. But, you know, they need that third monthly book, so by hook or by crook, they're going to do it, damn it. Uh, speaking of awkward, let's look at the pacing of this book here. We open with a snowball fight, which is fair enough. Seeing the X-Men engage in leisure activities is a Claremont hallmark, right? Unfortunately, this was all to build to Betsy and Neil dry-humping in the snow in front of Betsy's then-boyfriend. Maybe this is where Warren gets his exhibitionist tendencies, huh? Uh, we got Rogue coping with her not-quite-secondary mutation, which, you know, would be an okay subplot if only she'd... I don't know, shut up about it? This is another failing of the No More Thought Balloons era, because we don't get to see Rogue struggling in her mind, and so instead she's forced to endis- endlessly kvetch every time she's on panel, and it's pretty brutal. And what's with this weird overprotectiveness of Gambit? I'm pretty sure he's still got his powers at this point, though he won't for long. Really just no good. Uh, Those one-off vignette stories? (laughs) I swear I'm still not convinced they actually happened. I mean, why were we suddenly at a circus? How was Wolverine in Japan and in Xavier's at the same time? How many times did Warren commute from upstate to New York City to make these scenes work? How quickly can he fly? Why did we get a whole page devoted to Bishop punching a car? I get the feeling, and this is pure projection here, that before writing this script, maybe Claremont spent like six hours on the phone with Louis Simonson, who he'd asked to read his entire return, and make notes about all of his new dangling plots. And then with that list, he decided to wrap them all up here. Well, not counting the Neo, because ain't nobody got time for that. I know I'm probably being a little too hard on this issue, and this era... But I will say, given the circumstances, you know, the editorial upheaval, the creative shuffle, the character dibsing, you know, people calling dibs on certain characters, Claremont probably had to do whatever he could to make this work as both a send-off and a soft pilot to his upcoming series. It was what it was. I I didn't really enjoy it, but what are you going to do? I suppose, like we've been doing with uh, several of these issues to this point, we could look at this as purely a Christmas issue and... uh, Well, it is a story that happens on Christmas. It's just not a very good one. Uh, The art is also uneven. It doesn't really come across to me as anything more than passable. Um, There are multiple inkers credited here, which probably didn't help. And, as mentioned, a lot of editorial upheaval. Who knows where this was going to fit? Who knows how this was supposed to go? 
this whole package it doesn't feel like an issue of X-Men it feels more like a like a story from X-Men Unlimited which isn't a good thing overall if you plan to read Extreme X-Men in its entirety you'll probably want to start with this issue other than that you don't need this in your life there isn't a whole lot to dig here even as a Christmas issue which I am a sucker for there ain't much here um, this is uh Really just a rushed and forced ending to a return that should have been more than what it was. Uh, it's it's kind of sad when you stop to think about it. Now, I don't know if Claremont would have eventually found his footing with this. Uh, I really don't know what the plans would have been had Jemis uh, and Casada not taken over when they did. I could only imagine that it would be more of the same and maybe worse. So that's about all I got to say. About X-Men Volume 2, number 109 Now if anybody has any thoughts they'd like to share About uh, the Claremont Return, or Christmas, or X-Men Or whatever you want to talk about Please feel free to reach out You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com You can find blog posts and show notes Over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can chat with us on Facebook In our little group, 90s X-Men and uh, you can hear all the audio from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just one more day to go in our Merry X-Lapsed uh, excursion here. There will be a show on Christmas Day. So if you have a few moments to spare or if you're maybe stuck going to work or commuting, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to keep you company <laughs> as best I can. So uh, till then, uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, sharing their time with me, and uh, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to day five of Merry X Lapsed. And uh, now, if you're listening in real time, today is Christmas. So, uh, Merry Christmas to everybody out there. And today, we're going to be going outside of the flagship books to discuss a Christmas with the X Men story. Even though it's a, uh, it's not officially the X Men. It's Generation X. We're going to be talking about today. And uh, the book is Generation X number four, 
This had a February 1995 cover date. The story is called Between the Cracks. Written by Scott Lobdell with pencils by Chris Pachalo. Inks Mark Buckingham. Colors Steve Bouchelato. Letters Richard Stockings and Comic Craft. Edits Bob Harris, Tom DeFalco. And cover price $1.95. Now I know that today is a very busy day if you're listening in real time, so I won't waste your time. We'll go right into the story here. Or into the cover, I guess. Now our cover is, uh, it's pretty Christmassy. Which uh, might just fool us into thinking that the story within will be as well. It's not. Uh, it really isn't, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, now the issue is uh, got some, you know, cover copy on it that says it's a holiday spectacular, and pretty much all the pages inside look like they've been gift wrapped, which is a really, really cool gimmick. I like it a lot. There are also little elves hanging around in the gutters, having themselves a good time, having some nice conversation, holding up some signs to let us know what direction the book goes. It's pretty neat stuff. So we open, probably sometime close to Christmas. I'm assuming. Banshee is taking a handful of students on a little road trip from Massachusetts to Maine. At least that's what he's going to say anyway. Now, our field trippers include M, Skin, Sink, and Jubilee. Now, M is sucking on a candy cane and Jubilee's wearing a Santa hat, which is kind of as Christmassy as we're going to get here. Anyway, they come up to a police roadblock. Banshee has Skin lower himself down as to not draw any attention. Then a shotgun-wielding officer saunters over to chat Sean up. And, uh, you know, also get his license and registration. Seems weird that they just asked some random dude for his ID, but I don't know much about law enforcement nor roadblock protocol, so I won't argue the point any. A bishop complies without issue, but with a top of the morning, because of course he does. Jubilee then pops her head out of the window to inform the ossifer that they're uh, super psyched to see maple trees. Fair enough. The officer lets them know that uh, the bridge to Faybrook is closed, However, they could double back a few miles and take a detour that'll get them there. Bishop thanks the officer for the tip and turns the car around. Now, once they're away, Monet pipes up that, uh, you know, I've been doing some studying and there is no bridge to Faybrook. And so the officer lied to them. But why? Well, let's find out. We're going to shift scenes to Faybrook, Maine, where there is a hostage situation going down at a school. A young, disfigured mutant named Elliot is holding his fellow students and his teacher hostage. The police outside wrestle with the idea of uh, open firing into the schoolhouse. <sighs> that doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? Uh, seems the only reason that they actually don't do this, they don't fire into the school, is because they assume that old Elliot's probably bulletproof since he's a mutant and all. Uh, we get a look inside the school and we meet this Elliot. And he sort of resembles the Elephant Man. Uh, he's very upset that he's going to be removed from this school due to the way that he looks. He turns to his teacher, who had previously promised to fight for him. The teacher pleads with him to let the other children go. And he comments that this situation isn't helping to defuse the fact that people are scared of him. Elliot continues to cry. After all, his teacher, Mr. Lorenzano, had promised to teach him. We shift scenes and uh, we go to the Biosphere at the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters... The one in Massachusetts, of course, since this is Generation X. We see Penance, whose story seems that uh, Marvel can't seem to get straight even to today. She's there, and she's admiring a bunch of butterflies all by her lonesome. That is, until she's joined by Chamber, who has a plateful of sliced apples, and they share themselves a nice little moment. Now, this moment is observed via the monitors by Husk, who's already got the hot pants for Jono. Emma Frost 
saunters in in a very unflattering moo-moo-looking sweater, and she notes that it would appear that Paige is eavesdropping. Paige gets all defensive, which seems to amuse Emma, who assures her that she wasn't passing any sort of judgment. She then tells Husk that she reminds her of herself when she was younger, which might be the scariest thing of all. From here, we hop back up to Maine. The officers are talking about the standoff, and we learn that Elliot's parents are on their way to try and talk some sense into their son. In a nearby ice cream truck, which wouldn't seem out of place during Christmas time out here in Arizona, where it's, you know, upwards of 70 to 80 degrees, but in Maine? An uh, ice cream truck in Maine during the winter probably should have been a huge red flag to anyone with any level of observational skill. Anyway, inside this ice cream truck is somebody who's checking in with somebody else. Somebody else that they call Nanny and promise that they'll make them proud. So I'll give you three guesses who our daddy's going to be here. Banshee and the gang arrive around this time, and so we join he and Sink atop a nearby building. After Banshee KOs a SWAT guy with the perfect frequency sonic something or another, of course. Sean asks Ev to use his mutant aura powers to focus in on Elliot, and so he tries. Down below, we can see that M and Skin have taken out another pair of SWAT guys, which seems like it might be a step too far, right? Especially when we see how Skin goes about doing this. It's really kind of disturbing. Jubilee, she does her part by blending in with the rest of the looky-loos to get all the deets on the sitch, or something. She learns a bit about Elliot and the current situation. He, has, Elliot, that is, has been kicked out of this school on account that the other students and their families are afraid that he'll contaminate them with mutantitis or something. Jubilee humors the, you know, the goofball local and continues to listen. She finds out that the one guy who was in Elliot's corner throughout all of this, Mr. Lorenzano, is among the kid's hostages. Now, Jubilee considers reporting this all back to Banshee like she'd been instructed to, but decides maybe she'll just have a look at it herself. After all, I don't think I have to remind anyone that she used to hang out with Wolverine. Though, this might actually be the one time she doesn't remind us all of that fact. By now, Elliot's parents have shown up, and they're pleading with their son to call this off. Elliot refuses. He doesn't think anybody cares about him. And he thinks that people only care about the pretty kids. And he's probably not wrong. Uh, worth noting, Mr. Lorenzano, the teacher, he's gripping at his chest right now. Something's definitely up. Go back to the rooftop. Sink feels something odd. He sort of dismisses it. Gotta remember, he was a young, untrained mutant at this point, and so he might not have a full grasp on his powers just yet. Sean's like, huh, you feel weird? Please explain. Ev says that his mutant aura has pinged. You know, he has found something. Only it's not coming from anyone inside the schoolhouse. Instead, it's coming from that very strange out-of-place ice cream truck down below. Wonder what that could be. Back on the ground, Elliot's parents keep begging their boy to, you know, cut it out. Elliot looks at Mr. Lorenzano for help, but by this point, he's toppled over onto the floor. At that moment, in the basement of the school, Jubilee has snuck inside. And uh, she comments how gross it is down there. It makes me wonder what sort of odors might be in that basement, and whether or not they might keep a Najari demon at bay. Elliot shouts out the window that he just wants to be left alone so he could learn and be with his teacher. His teacher, by the way, ain't looking so hot. Back to the rooftop. Banshee is preparing to set the team in motion. Unfortunately, before he can give the order, the back of that ice cream truck pops open and reveals our big bad, which is the new-look orphan maker. Duh. 
Now, the Orphan Maker's gimmick, if you're not aware, is uh, well, basically exactly what it says on the tin. He makes orphans out of mutants by killing their unsupportive parents. He then turns those mutant children over to Nanny, who can nurture and love them. And so he's here to kill Elliot's folks. He takes aim with a pistol and pulls the trigger twice. Banshee, however, is barely able to stop the bullets with some sonic hoodoo. Orphan Maker recognizes Sean as being with the X-Men. M flies in to correct and punch him, because Sean is now with Generation X. Monet gives newer readers the skinny on Nanny and the Orphan Maker via the files of X-Factor. She then tells O.M. that she doesn't want to hurt him, to which he punches her straight through a squad car windshield. Skin jumps into the fray, wrapping himself around the Orphan Maker, while Banshee laments the fact that this entire situation is blowing up all around him. Back inside, Jubilee continues her stealth mission to the classroom. As she draws nearer, she's passed by a bunch of fleeing students, one of whom refers to her as Lady, which kind of freaks her out. Jubilee then goes for a steeple grip, doing her little finger gun path gimmick, she then steps into the classroom with her fingers drawn and finds Elliot, cradling his now-dead teacher in his arms. The boy begs Jubilee for help, to which she tells him that, uh, Hey, pal, your, your teacher's dead. There's nothing I can do. Elliot knows. He knows the guy's dead. It you know, looks like Mr. Lorenzano had a bum heart, which just gave out amid the excitement. Everett then bursts into the classroom to check in and inform us all that the hostage children made it safely outside. Back outside, Em and Skin continue battling with the Orphan Maker. Skin is shocked off the baddie due to his armor's conduit whatever. Uh, Sean tries to put some space between the Orphan Maker and Elliot's parents, to which Orphan Maker kind of just shakes his head. He claims that he's not needed here because Elliot's folks more or less orphaned poor Elliot themselves years ago. He then runs back to his ice cream truck and flees the scene, and uh, Panchi is almost too gobsmacked to be disappointed that the bad guy got away. We wrap up with the revelation that Elliot isn't even a mutant. He's just unfortunate looking. The team talks about wins and losses, being hated and feared. You know, standard X-Men stuff. And we close out with Banshee suggesting that Elliot, who is now being led away, is just a poor soul who fell between the cracks. That's the end of our story, but not the end of the issue. Now, if you think we're finally going to get something Christmassy here, maybe we'll see our team huddled around a tree opening gifts, drinking eggnog. Maybe it'll just be a pinup. Maybe it'll be something Christmassy, right? No, no, it's not that at all. We don't get that. Uh, instead, we've got Jubilee preparing to read us the next issue blurb. Only surprisingly enough, it's not for Generation X number five. Hmm. Instead, it's for whatever the hell a Generation Next is... Huh, she's confused. Readers were confused. Everybody in the whole world's confused. That is, if you didn't listen to the ten or so hours of coverage on this very channel of what she's talking about here. And we close out this issue with the Mkron crystal doing that thing it does, and that's a wrap. So let's talk about what we just read. Um, probably not the best issue to cover on Christmas, right? <laughs> but, uh, hey, we're already here, aren't we? I think I got this one confused with a later Generation X Christmas story when I pulled it to uh, to cover here. Um, I could have sworn this was going to be the Yes Jubilee, There is a Santa Claus story. But I suppose that's the later one, and it should have been obvious that it was the later one because by then they all knew each other, and this is still very early in the series. Um, oh, well, I guess if we're still doing this next year or in July, we'll get to that one. That said, 
this is a tough one to look at purely as a Christmas issue, isn't it? It feels sort of like a stock plot that the X-Men books used from time to time, especially during the mid-90s. Um, it's the standard feared and hated, but ratcheted up to the nth degree and stripped of all of its subtlety. That doesn't mean it wasn't a good issue or a good story, because I quite enjoyed it. Though in fairness, this is kind of my wheelhouse, so I might just be a little bit biased. Let's start by talking about the art. Now, Chris Bocciolo has got to be in my top three of comics artists, despite the fact that I've never pronounced his name the same way twice. I just love his work. Here is no exception. Uh, it's so dark, but contrasted and almost like infused with a weird beauty. Except for Emma's Mumu, because that was not pleasant to look at in any way. I've often said that Bocciolo's work on Generation X immediately reminds me of Fall, and Thanksgiving time in particular. This issue, well, despite the fact that it's not Christmassy, does make me think of Christmas. It uh, almost makes me homesick. Uh, I don't get homesick often, uh, especially nowadays. Except for this time of year, because, I mean, in Arizona, it's, it's a... It's a banner day where I don't have to put the air conditioning on for a couple hours during the day. It's just very, very different from growing up in New York. And uh, right now, I mean, there isn't a whole lot going on that makes me think it's Christmas outside where back home you knew. There was that smell in the air, the feeling, just a different vibe. Generation X is a book that for me it's hard to revisit because it's one of the very few times that I get homesick. You know, Generation X didn't happen in my old neck of the woods. It happened in Massachusetts, but a lot of the tone is similar. You know, the my high school years, I was on Long Island, which is, you know, is a suburb, and for much of the year is very, very green. You know, you drive on the expressways, and you, it's trees on, on either side. It's very, very green, except, of course, in the fall, where, you know, it's gold and red and orange and just beautiful, beautiful stuff here, and that's so much of what Generation X evokes for me. It's very hard for me to revisit because it's one of the very, very few times that I, I get you know struck with a little bit of homesickness. Now back to the issue: the creativity of using the gutters and uh, you know a lot of the non-panel paginal real estate to add some holiday flavor. That was awesome. I love that, and it's something that I've seen Bachelo do from time to time, and it's always very, very cool to see. Let's talk about the design for Elliot. Uh, it's very, very, very bizarre. And excellent use of shadows, you know? Uh, in some panels, he looks just like a scared little boy, which he is, right? In other panels, he looks like the monster that the community believes him to be. Amazingly well done, subtle, and just uh, beautiful. In its, in its horror and everything, it's just beautifully done. Uh, the new-look Orphan Maker is... Maybe a little bit busy, but I think that's kind of the point. Overall, art-wise, zero complaints. This is amazing. Um, with that out of the way, let's talk story. Well, first of all, it's not a Christmas story. <laughs> it sort of falls into our column B that we've been talking about here, where it's a story that might be happening during Christmas time, but there isn't much outside of M eating a candy cane and Jubilee's hat that tells us what time of year it is. As for just a regular issue of Generation X, it's quite good. Uh, again, perhaps a bit tropey. But for these newer mutants, you know, Jubilee and Banshee accepted, of course, this is a good reminder that they are feared and hated for some silly reasons, or some very basic reasons. 
it's like a young mutant rite of passage to be part of a story like this. So, to that, to that, uh, you know, regard, it, it certainly works. Well, we also got to figure, uh, we got to consider the fact that uh, with what's about to happen in the X books for the next four months, it's not like they could have started a big storyline here, right? I mean, we're going right into the Age of Apocalypse here. This book won't be back for five months. I'm not saying this was filler, but maybe it was like a safe way to bid, to bridge a gap, right? They knew they needed this issue, and just here's just a, a here's just a story, you know. Here's a, a little tropey, a little you know well worn, but here's a story. Uh, we do continue to learn about our new characters, and we establish some of the interpersonals. Um, Husk watching Chamber make nice with Penance was a really well-done scene. Uh, Emma's commentary was also pretty cool, as it kind of made Paige consider her actions, right? Because, let's let's figure here, if, if Emma doesn't see anything wrong with eavesdropping, then there's almost something, there's almost definitely something wrong with it. Good stuff, and, and I mean, it's funny, because I, I just talked about homesickness a minute ago. Seeing scenes like this actually make me homesick for this book. <laughs> a book that makes me homesick for actual home. It's very, very weird. Overall, I'd recommend this one. Not as a Christmas issue, but just as an issue. I think a lot of folks will enjoy it. It's well-worn, but it's well-done. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous book to look at. So if you haven't read this one or if it's been a minute since you have, definitely give it a, give it a look. Give it a look. And with that, I want to thank everyone out there for indulging me. Letting me go, I don't know, uh, off task for a week uh, And I really needed a break from our current year grind uh, I've been doing it every day since September 1st So it was nice to take a little bit of a break from the Dawn of X stuff I haven't even looked at a Dawn of X book in you know five days So it's the longest I've gone without looking at one in a while So very much needed it, and I appreciate you all indulging uh, this little break, this little vacation from paradise, uh, as I put it. And I do hope that this trip down, you know, Xmas with the X-Men memory lane has been as fun for you as it's been for me. I mean, we're five days in, and it's all done, and I almost don't want to let it go. It's kind of like Christmas itself, right? <laughs> it's uh, You don't want to let it go, because... Then we just get back to muddling. We go back to the regular, the real life. The world comes back to life, and it's a different place. It's a different place. But uh, I do want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, all that stuff. Uh, I know it's been a very, very weird year, and I also know that I'm probably the 400th person you're hearing say that today. But I do hope that your holiday season has been the best it could be, given what's going on. I want to thank you all for keeping me company. And I can only hope that I've helped in a little way to keep you company as well. We'll be back to normal X-lapsed coverage after the weekend. And I hope you'll all join me for that. Um, now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very, very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com and xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want over on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men. And you could listen to all the audio archives, which includes a lot of Christmas stuff with the X-Men and otherwise, over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's all I got for you today. Just one more giant thank you for uh, indulging me in this little trip and uh, joining me for this little trip. Uh, I, I 
The holidays can be a very difficult time for some of us, right? It's a, a time of togetherness, but it's also a time that even when you're together, you can feel kind of alone. So I thank you all for keeping me company. I hope in just some little way I kept you company as well. So thank you all so, so much. To you and yours, from me and mine, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, stay safe, and uh, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Going on deep inside your heart.